You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is sponsored by FastBitcoins.com. FastBitcoins provides a simple way for people to buy Bitcoin directly from their bank account or with cash in physical stores. Their services are rapidly growing in availability across the UK, Estonia, as well as Canada and they're launching in Australia soon too. FastBitcoins is committed to providing high-quality Bitcoin-only services. They want to make sure that the growing number of people interested in buying and benefiting from the possibilities of Bitcoin can do so easily, securely, and with as few distractions as possible. Learn more about FastBitcoins' range of services at fastbitcoins.com, including how you can earn Bitcoin for free through their referral scheme. That is fastbitcoins.com. Fastbitcoins.com. Go check them out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on a fellow musician. He is a Christian hip-hop artist. He goes by the name of Ruslan. He is also an all-round creative entrepreneur, and he's a friend of mine. So great to have him on the show. How you doing, bro? Dude, I'm doing good. I'm super excited to be on here with you, man. It's going to be fun. Awesome, man. So I've done a really brief intro there, but for people who are not familiar with you, let them know a little bit about you. Yeah. So my name is Ruslan. I was born in Azerbaijan, Baku, which is just north of Iran. And me and my family are uh, Armenian. We came out to America as refugees because of the pogroms of Baku in the late 80s. We relocated to San Diego, which at the time was a predominantly black Hispanic neighborhood. I subsequently fell in love with hip hop music, fell in love with basketball, thought I was going to go to the NBA. That was, that was plan A. And uh, then I discovered that there's never been an Armenian that's ever made it to the NBA. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, once I discovered genetics, I thought, hey, why not? Second best thing, be a rapper. (laughs) That was about 20 years ago. And it took me 15 years to make it a career. And well, I I became profitable fairly, you know, I don't know, 10 years in and then Mm. uh, 15 years in, which was five years ago is when I went full time, quit my job. 
which was at, I worked at a church prior to doing music full time, started mm-hmm. doing music full time, dabbled into YouTube content and, you know, uh, podcasting, all that kind of stuff. I'm a husband. I've been married for 12 years uh, to my wife, Monette. We met in high school and I am a father to Levi, who is five and a half. Got to be very particular about the five and a half. <laughs> he'll, he'll correct you. So yeah, I do music, hip hop. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm agnostic when it comes to politics. <laughs> and, Safe. Yeah, man. Awesome, man. Well, there, dude, there, there's so much there that I can jump into. But I mean, I'm curious. I mean, tell us a little bit more about the about the backstory because I think it's important to understand the sort of backstory behind people because it sort of helps to frame and understand their mindset and where the sort of angle they're coming from. So, I mean, in your situation, so your family came over to the U.S. as refugees. And uh, how old were you at that time? I was six. I was six, which is really trippy because my son's about to be six. And I remember mm-hmm. a lot of my first memories go back to his age. So I'm just kind of like, oh, man, if I remember stuff from five or six. I got to make sure I don't contaminate him with any craziness. <laughs> five and six. Yeah. So do you remember, do you remember the, the move? Do you remember that, what that situation was, was like? Yeah. So my dad, so the pogroms of Baku, basically Azerbaijan, which is a part of the former Soviet Union, but Azerbaijan was a predominantly Muslim state. This goes back all the way to the Turkish genocide of Armenia, of Armenians and it's kind of, it's around World War One, And the, t- the tension just kept going between the Arzis um, and the Armenians. So they started pushing a lot of the Armenians out early, I mean, late 80s. My dad had already was, was traveling back and forth between Moscow. So I remember him not really being there a whole lot and having to, you know, move, move around a lot. And then I remember us going to a couple of different places, my mom having to stay and uh sell some of the like the property that we had there you know and because my mom is my my mom is adopted but her family's armenian Mm -hmm. but she doesn't look armenian my mom looks like a regular like russian woman and so she was able to kind of stand stay stay back and uh not have any type of hostility or tension towards her because you know armenians by and large they they look more and more arab darker features and so she, yeah, so she stayed back. And then I remember us coming here. And I remember my first, my first memory of America is that we drove past this uh, grocery store, the grocery store at the time was called Lucky's. And it was right off of University Avenue. And I, I had never seen anything so marvelous. I thought they were taking me to a toy store. Like <laughs> shopping for food in Russia was not like shopping for food in America. I re- like I remember that vividly. And I remember all the lights and how colorful it was and how mm. bright it was. And I was like, yo, like we came to America. This is so rad. They take it, they're taking me to a toy store. Like what other way than to open our time here than to take me into a toy store? <laughs> and then I was like, you realize, no, we're going grocery shopping. But that was like a very distinctive memory was wow this is this is so different like everything about this is so different than than soviet russia Mm. and subsequently maybe a couple months after six months after something like that that's when the fall of communism happened Mm. and uh and and then that i discovered that like we were the we were the commies like we we (laughs) there was like i didn't know i didn't know americans in 
uh, Russians okay. didn't like each other. So like mm. the, you have the wait, we're coming out here because these people don't like us. And then we're, and then you get here and these people say that we don't like them. And then there's this weird tent. And I'm like, what? Like none of this made sense at six, but I literally yeah. remember like neighbors telling me like, yeah, you know, Russians are uh, communists. Like, What's a communist? What's like, a communist? <laughs> no, you know? Yeah. No, that's funny, man. Um, and what was it like for you growing up in, in San Diego? I mean, school, all of that. What was, um, I mean, it must've been weird for you coming over from a, you know, different side of the world under those circumstances. So what was it like sort of, I mean, I'm assuming you probably didn't even speak English when you got to the U.S., did you? Or Yeah, I did not speak English. My mother was like the only English-speaking one within our whole like community of people that came over because it was like us and a couple other families. Hmm. And she spoke, uh, she learned like British English. So like she, it was like a little different, you know, um, she's, yeah, it was weird. She spoke with like a Russian accent, but yeah, it was weird. So yeah. I learned English through cartoons and through rap music. Oh, wow. That's, that's okay. How, yeah. That's how I learned. That's how I learned English. I, uh, majority of, I think we were the only Russian family in like an all black complex. So all of my neighbors were black and it was, uh, it was, it was different, man. It was, it was, it was cool. Like, I just remember thinking like Americans are so cool. Like American culture is so cool, you know? And the only thing I really knew about American culture before this was like Michael Jackson. Like that's the only okay. thing I knew was, was Michael, my only context. And I, uh, had just a lot of really, gracious people around me early on you know like mm. like my neighbors and um yeah just like i don't know it, it was just very accepting I, I think the black culture in america tends to be fairly accepting and accommodating of outsiders you know mm. which that's definitely how i felt i felt embraced i felt uh some you know assimilated to what was happening here and it was it was cool man i i growing up i mean granted like i didn't understand I didn't really understand we were poor until I understood that we were on welfare and that like mom didn't have a job. My dad subsequently left. So like they split up. My dad leaves six months in. Mom doesn't have anything to do. We get on welfare. And dude, we're just like, I didn't, I didn't know it was bad until like in hindsight, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Until I grew up and was like, oh man, we grew up pretty daggone poor, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like I remember like we would we were just hoping that she can get a job at like a grocery store. Like that was like our big like, wow, if she could just get a job at a grocery store, our life would be so much better. Yeah. And yeah, man. And so it was a very unique experience being oh Armenian, Armenian white kid who couldn't speak English in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, it's not a it's not a common story. You know, I think when you get people who go to whether it's the UK or US or for, for from different countries, there are how would I put it? There are certain groups, for example, in the UK, there are a lot of people who came to the UK from Jamaica or, you know, from Nigeria, etc. There are certain groups where it's quite common to have a big community, people who have come over from one place to an area. In the US, some, some places that might be uh, Mexico or Korea, etc. So for you, that's like a totally unique situation. That's kind of like being the odd one out um, without having other people who have sort of come from the same background. And then going into 
um, a predominantly black neighborhood as well. So it's not even like you went to, uh, you know, U S is a predominantly white country. So I don't know. I just think it, it's a very unique position. And I, I'd imagine that's something that sort of has helped shape your perspective on things a lot. Yeah. It was like a year, six months to a year before there was any other families from Baku that came mm. or, you know, because of this stuff. So later down the road, it was more families came over and there was kind of like a community. There was an Armenian church that everybody kind of was a part of. And that, it was more like a resource hub. But by the time the community started being formed, like I was, I already had my friends in my mm. apartment complex. Like I already had like all oh, these these are the people I hang out with. We were doing sleepovers. Like I remember the first time my 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 friend, his name was Steven Jackson. He lived like two or three doors down in the same apartment. He like asked if we could do like a sleepover. And I like, you know, I'm like seven. I'm like, I don't understand what a sleepover is. And my mom's like, what's a sleepover? You just yeah. stay at their house. And dude, I remember one of the times he stayed at my house, his house, the back of like there's an alley. There's I my house is on the front. My apartment was on the front. His his apartment's on the back. And I remember one of the times he stayed over his house. Actually, there was a drive by on his house. They drove oh, wow. past and shot up where we would have been sleeping in his room. Wow. Yeah, dude. And I was like, this is so. And I remember like as a kid, dude, I'm like, I'm no, no older than like nine or 10 yeah. looking at the bullet holes in his like in the back of the apartment, which was the, which was where his, where his window was. Mm. I was like, man, this is this is crazy, man. And then subsequently, I remember going to. uh they took me to my first concert, which was uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop. Oh, wow. and I, okay. I was, it was, they was at the San Diego sports arena. I was, I was like in a fourth row, <laughs> only white kid in sight, only kid, <laughs> me and Steven, like the only kid with it. How, how old were you? I couldn't have, this is like Dr. Dre, Cron, this is when Snoop Dogg put out um, Doggy Style. So this is really, like, wow, yeah, around surprised. that time. Yeah, yeah definitely this, not I was young. Yeah, yeah I, no, definitely not age appropriate. <laughs> not at all. I remember discovering Snoop first and then going back and checking out Dre's The Chronic. Like, I didn't know who Dre was because Dre, I think that came out a couple of years before. I don't know. But I remember that that tour and it was like all the, all of the Death Row rappers were there and it was wow. definitely not age appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't imagine letting my eight, nine-year-old son go yeah, see for real. a rap concert nowadays, you know? Yeah, especially like Snoop, Snoop and Dre in, in the 90s. That's a... Uh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a, a mild uh, a mild introduction. So um, I was reading um, I was reading um, uh, an article or uh, it was an article or an interview that you you'd done online, and it was talking about how during this sort of period in your life, actually, you you rejected God and became uh, sort of a relatively firm atheist, actually, from yes. a pretty young age. So tell us a little bit more about that. So what happened was my dad and my mom were already on like rocky ground when they came out here. And I didn't quite know how bad it was. Right. But they came out here and I thought we were a family. Like I was mm -hmm. like, oh, we're a family. And what happened was they both had uh, other people that they were seeing back in Russia. Okay. Remember my, my dad traveled a lot uh, back and forth. So I didn't know this. I actually I blocked this memory out, but I remember discovering letters that my mom wrote that had kiss marks on it, like, like lipstick kiss. And I thought they were for my dad. So I being like six found these letters, brought them to my dad. Oh, and was like, look, like mommy wrote you these letters. 
And for him, that was like, that's it. Like, I can't do this. Like we said that this is going to be a clean, this is his version of it. We yeah. said it was going to be a clean start. I'm done. And so he, he bounces, he bounces. Mm. Uh, he said he tried to stay in my life, you know, but my mom, I guess, told him like I'm not his son anymore and whatever. Long story short, he brings over his girlfriend from Russia. She, who's my stepmom now, is pregnant with twins. And I don't remember the exact sequence of this, but they never get, well, according to my mom, never got divorced. Like there was never any, any way to dissolve their marriage. Mm. Um, and the church, that Armenian church that I mentioned that we were all going to, that pastor, or they called him Terhair, remarried my dad to my stepmom. Mm-hmm. And according to my mom, they were never divorced. So I grew up hearing your dad is a polygamist. Okay. You know, the church, the church, you know, remarried him and he wasn't divorced. Mm. How could they do this to us? Right. That is that is a narrative that I grew up with. And obviously it's more nuanced than that as you get older. Cause according to my dad, they were already split up back in Russia. Mm. And so I grew up with this hostility towards God in my life because one, that was my first impression was like, how are they just going to re like my mom and dad are split up. How are they just going to remit? My dad's not in the picture. They're just going to remarry him. And it's just, yeah. it's just like, everything is all good. Like, and I remember seeing those wedding pictures and I was just like, wow, like they, it's literally like, everything's all good. I wasn't at the mm. wedding. I, I didn't, you know, I, it was a while before I even met my brother and sister. And now we're, we're good. We're reconciled and everything is, everything's much better now. But yeah, dude, I grew up with a gnarly hostility towards God. And then that same Armenian community of people, we were all like the altar boys. And there was, and I ended up getting like assaulted, molested by some of the older altar boys. They're like 13, 14. Oh, I was like eight or nine, seven, yeah. eight or nine from that community. So you have these two, these two like mm. really awful events right next to each other. And they were all attached to the, the church and to God and to, you know, so in my mind, as very early on up from eight, from, from age eight to probably through age 15, 14, 15, it was like, there's no God. Why would God allow this to happen to me and my family? Why would God allow uh, my dad to leave like this? Why would God allow me to get assaulted like this? Why would God allow us to be this poor and be on welfare and my mom to be depressed and an alcoholic. Why would, you know what I mean? So yeah. that was like my narrative. And the, it was interesting because if something weird happened in, in my community. Remember I told you the family I grew up with, uh, grew up next to their house got shot up. They were in, kind of involved in some sketchy stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, uh, that lady who I still keep in contact with today, her name is Cherie. She ends up getting uh, arrested for like smuggling drugs or something sketchy. Happened. I don't remember all the particulars, but she ended up going to jail for like a year or something. She ends up having like a radical conversion experience with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because of her and everybody seeing like, yo, she was kind of doing this, this not so good stuff. And now she, she went to prison, got out radical, radical change in everything. She stopped listening to gangster rap music. Like it was like 180 yeah. that our like a lot of our complex became born again, Christian. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so now I'm again, now I'm the one Armenian guy out. I feel a part of like hip hop and black culture because everybody's accepted me, as, mm-hmm. you know, and now everybody's radically saved and Christian. <laughs> and now, <laughs> now we're watching and, you know, they're bumping Fred Hammond super loud wow. and gospel music. And 
And I remember getting arrested at the age of 11 for attempting to break in a house. It's just being a derelict, just like an idiot. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the reputation we built in the neighborhood. And I remember getting arrested and having to do my community service at like a black Baptist church. And them just always sharing the gospel with me. and like, man, you're going to grow up. You're going to do great things for God. Like it's all over you. Just wait. God's going to use you in, in, in really cool ways. Mm. And you don't even, you don't even understand what God's going to do to your life. <laughs> and I was just like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, uh, and they were right, man. And so, yeah, very like, yeah, very. And I still stay in touch with a lot of those folks, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's powerful, man. I mean, what was it that brought you to believe in God or to believe in God again? Because, you know, of course, we, I'm sure we, we both know a lot of atheists and I'm someone who, you know, was raised as, raised as a Christian and has always been a Christian. Of course, like any believer, I have moments where I ask myself certain questions or I have these sort of internal debates with myself or even external debates with other people, etc. So I'm very curious as to someone who went through that stage personally, what was it that led you to think, okay, I believe in God. And I guess beyond that, I believe in, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in, I believe in Christianity. What, what was the turning point there? I can see that uh, you doing that community service was the start of it. But what sort of led to that? It was a lot. It was a lot of seeds planted from seventh grade when I had to do that community service and seeing everybody get saved and people change. And there's like a hostility in you naturally when you're seeing people like be one way and then all of a sudden become a different way. Mm. And I so there there was those seeds planted early on, and then fast forward in ninth grade, I started dating a girl and it's always a girl, right? Like it's always a girl. <laughs> and I started dating a girl. And so my position was I'm an atheist or an agnostic at the least somewhere in there. Right. Mm. Uh, there's no God. If there's anything, there's aliens. Like that's as deep as it went for me. Yeah, like, yeah. And she was, she was a church goer. Her family is a church goer. And the only way that I could see her, uh, on Sundays was if I went to church with them. And I was like, all right, like, what do I have to lose? Like, let me, let me check it out. And it was a t total different experience than like the church, the kind of church I grew up going to. What I grew up was like, the service was in Armenian. It mm. was a lot of, it was more Catholic, like Eastern Orthodox Catholic. Yeah, yeah. This was, oh, they're singing like songs I could jam to. The message actually makes sense. And I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe there is a God. And then I started talking to a different girl who was a Jehovah's Witness. And so then there was these, these opposing views. And the question for me that I, I was cornered into a question was like, who is Jesus? Like, who is Jesus? Like, because if, if, if this stuff about Jesus happened, then I, I, I then can, based on a person, not a book, not a philosophy, not a set of rules, but based mm -hmm. on a person, I reverse engineered the rest of my worldview. And I read a book. I, I, I mean, this is like my sophomore year of high school. I read a book called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I read The Reasoning for the Scriptures by the Watchtower Association. I was reading the Bible. I was reading the Quran. Like I was reading everything I could get mm -hmm. my hands on. And The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict and then The Case for Christ subsequently just laid out the most linear argument. And the argument was just simply... Like who is Jesus? He's either a, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Mm -hmm. He's either who he claims to be, the Son of God, God in the flesh, 
and and he lived and died and rose, or he was a liar and he was intentionally deceiving people, or he was just crazy. He was just mm-hmm. nuts. And that's the logic. Like you, it's one of those three options. Like mm-hmm. you can't have both of you can't be a good teacher. You can't be a moral, moral authority. Like you can't be a good teacher and be a liar or a lunatic. You, can't, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and so that it was just very linear. And so then once I looked at the historical account of Jesus, it, there was way more evidence for him having been a real person, for him having been crucified from secular and Christian views. And that it just made the most sense. Like it just clicked for me. Mm. And then it was like a subsequent, like a year and a half of actually transforming my life style to follow Jesus. Mm. And that was a process. So that, that I was really convinced by that. It, it wasn't like a emotional emotional experience it wasn't something that was like oh man like i got hit with this i mean i've had emotional experiences in church but it was more very like no this makes the most amount of sense i stood on this position that there is no god mm-hmm. now i feel like that there's a god and his name is jesus powerful man that's powerful like it's uh it's interesting there's um a guy named roman mcclay who wrote a book called sanction i interviewed him uh last year for my podcast and he had been an atheist for, you know, like a very staunch atheist for 20 something, you know, 20 something, 30 something years. And he had a, he had like a revelatory moment. He was like out in the woods and he just had like in, in, in one night he went from like atheist to Christian and his book, man, I should show you this. It's, it's, he's, he's, his book is like, it's one of the biggest books. It's bigger than the Bible. Uh, mm. his, the book he wrote and he said that God gave him this book and he just mm. transcribed it. So he, his, his story's crazy. He, he lived, he just, he lives in the wilderness, just like in a, in a house by himself. And he just spent one year, 15 hours a day, just transcribing this book. Mm. I've got, I've got the first half of it on my shelf over there. It's so fat. I haven't yet. <laughs> I, I'm going to read this book, but it's so daunting. And I know that that's just the first part of it. But his story's just just crazy. He's just mm. like, yeah, I, I had this dream, this vision, and for the next year, I just had to to sit down and write this. And I was like, wow, like that's a, I hadn't heard that kind of, <laughs> I hadn't heard mm. that kind of story before. So it's just interesting the different ways that uh, someone can come to believe in God. Yeah, man, it's wild. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So uh, I want to get more into more into your music because that's how I first heard about you. I saw an interview you did with um. Uh, brand man Sean on YouTube because I, w- I was watching some of his videos and it was like, yeah, I'm going to be interviewing this independent rapper and entrepreneur, Ruslan. Of course, as a fellow independent rapper, I'm always open to seeing what other people are doing and you know, getting ideas, getting tips, tactics, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of it's kind of funny how that all happened. And then I ended up in the U.S. last year, and then all three of us ended up at A3C in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's cool how something can go from like I'm watching this video on uh on my phone and now like oh cool like now we're here and we're meeting each other and I think that's one of the dopest things about the the world we live in these days is annoying as social media can be and as stressful as it can be etc it's so cool how you can just find like-minded people all over the world and just connect with interesting people do stuff like this it's man it's it's truly incredible um, so how did you first get into hip hop as an artist? I was goofing around on a karaoke machine, remaking 
Snoop Dogg songs. <laughs> we had this like karaoke machine, or even before that, I remember just having a stereo and there was a cassette player, two cassette players, and you would like, re- you know, you could play the instrumental off of one and then record onto the other cassette with a little mm-hmm. microphone. And before we had microphones, I think we'd use like headphones and rewire them to be microphones. And so I was into it, you know, 90s, mid 90s, you know, huge fan of Tupac. Fast forward, I thought, like I told you, I thought I was going to be a basketball player because I had gotten into so much trouble that when me and my family, my mom finally relocated us to North County, I was like, man, like I'm done. Like I'm done being a knucklehead. I'm done breaking into houses. I've already been arrested. I've smoked a lot of weed at that point. I've drank a lot of alcohol. I don't... (laughs) I'm done. Like I'm done with all this stuff. And so I started playing basketball and I was, you know, I'm, I, I still play basketball. I'm fairly good at basketball, but uh, you know, the whole like genetics thing didn't, <laughs> it took a little longer to click for me. And long story short, I was around a bunch of people from, from basketball. And cause I had already kind of goofed around making a little bit of music, freestyling, that kind of things. We, I remember freshman year, we were like walking to the bus stop and they were like, uh, a friend of mine, we were all just kind of freestyling and I like started rapping and he was like, dude, like, and it was like, to them, it was evident, like, oh, this fool is like head and shoulders better than everybody else here, (laughs) you know? And so his name is Marcus Allen. Actually, I stay still in contact with him until this day on Facebook. And he was like, bro, you're, you're really good at rapping. Like you should rap more. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And then that same year, like somebody had a home studio and I recorded my first song freshman year, like a real first Mm -hmm. song with three verses. I did my first talent show um, that we won. I did, uh, and just, I just got into it. There was somebody around the corner. How old old were you at this time? Roughly? 15. Yeah. 15. Wow. Gosh, 20 years ago. It's just 20 years ago. It's crazy to say that (laughs) loud. And yeah, man. And so I was, just a guy who was recording and rapping around the area. And I was still playing basketball. But then when I got cut my sophomore year, um, unlike Michael Jordan's story, when he got cut his sophomore year for varsity, he came back and crushed it the next year. I was like, yeah, I think I'm just going to rap. You know what I mean? Like, I think I got, I think I got a, a better likelihood of doing something with this. I'm really into this. And thankfully, man, my mom scraped together some money. At this point, we had already moved out. She was working. She was a, she was a blackjack dealer at a casino out here. And uh, so she was making fairly better money now from tips mm-hmm. and stuff. And, and, and we scraped together, she scraped together money and got me like my first computer. And then I got a, a sound card and, and a microphone. And I was the guy in the neighborhood that had a studio. And so I got to record all my friends and people would come over and I, I started learning how to record, how to mix, how to record myself. Mm-hmm. And so I put out my first retail project in 2004. There's a project called Out of Order. There's an EP version that's not as horrible on Spotify right now. If you want to check that out, and uh, that was like my first retail thing. That was uh, that was insane. I had put out like mixtapes around the school and stuff, but this was this was in like Christian bookstores. Okay. And, like we had like an album release party for it, and like a bunch of people mm-hmm. showed up, and we sold you know I don't know a couple hundred sure. of those, and then I had like six hundred of them laying around yeah. my house, <laughs> and so. Yeah, man. So that was like the beginning of it. And it wasn't until six, seven years later that I met somebody, my buddy TJ. And he told me like, bro, like, I think you're a great rapper, but you got to learn a business. You got to learn the business side. You got to learn the sales. You got to learn the marketing. If you could learn this stuff, like, why aren't you on MySpace? Like MySpace was taking off. I was like, because MySpace is stupid. I'm going to do it (laughs) the real way, real way. And he's like, bro, you're missing out. Like like, this is a huge revolution Mm -hmm. that's about to happen Mm -hmm. with technology. Like, what are you doing? So I was late to MySpace, bro. I was late to, and my music probably wasn't that good to even be, to even stand out at, at that point. But I remember being late to MySpace 
And then as soon as like Twitter and Instagram came around, I was like, I gotta be on these. Like I gotta yeah. be on these. We had music videos fairly early on YouTube. Like I think our first video came out in like 2008 mm-hmm. on YouTube. So that was cool. And yeah, man. And then so by the time 2011, 2012 comes around, we're profitable at this point. I could, I could have quit my job. We're making really good money. We used a lot of the music money we made to get out of debt. Me and my wife how paid off forty five. How were you making? How were you making money at that stage? Was that primarily through music sales directly, or shows, or merchandise, or a combination? So we would do shows and. Sometimes we get paid for shows, sometimes we wouldn't. But what we'd do is we'd say, hey, man, like we want everybody here to, you know, get a copy of my music. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want money to be a barrier for that. So name your own price. Come to our merch table, name your own price for a CD. And so instead of selling 10 CDs at 10 bucks, we would sell 50, 60 CDs, some for two bucks, some for 25 yeah, yeah, bucks. Yeah. And, and so this is 2007, 2008. This is a culmination of church shows, House of Blues shows. But what we really did it was we did this thing called NACA, the National Association for Campus Activities, kept meeting people who were full-time, full-time music entrepreneurs. And they kept saying, you got to get into NACA. And I was dabbling in the spoken word scene. I was in the slam scene. San Diego has an amazing slam okay. team, amazing like spoken word community. We were, two of us were supposed to be on the last season of Deaf Poetry. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what that I'm, is, I'm but it's familiar. an HBO show. Yeah. I haven't watched yes. it, but I know of it. Yeah, so I was like, I, me and another poet from San Diego were supposed to be on the last season of it, but they they cut the budget and didn't want to fly anybody out and just did like New York okay. poets. So we were like devastated. So here I am in this scene and I'm meeting all these poets and they're telling me, you got to do NACA, you got to do NACA. I'm like, what's NACA? They're like, just look into it. So it took me a couple of years to finally figure out what NACA was. NACA is basically, you go and showcase for all the colleges in specific mm-hmm. regions. And if they like you, you can then, uh, you get booked to perform. And so my first year doing NACA, uh, they had a, um, they, they, we we kept submitting and never getting selected. And we finally got selected and we almost didn't make it like flight delays and just all kinds of issues. And then we, we got there, dude. And we like literally made it by the skin of our teeth and we performed. I was in a group. It was me and my buddy belief. We were a duo called the breaks at the time. And we just crushed it, man. Just the adrenaline. Like we, like we got to this moment, uh, and, and we ended up booking like 30 shows at like 20, between 2,500 and 2,000 and 3,000 a pop. Okay. And that was, that was the end of 20, 2011. And we were already doing like, like, Christian church Mm -hmm. shows and that kind of stuff. But this was all like Mm non-Christian shows, secular shows. And so going into 2012, here we are with like 25, 30 shows. And then what I would do is I would then pick up the phone and book smaller church gigs around it. You know, so if we're in Atlanta, we'll pull up and do a college show here. And so that was 2012, man. And that was like the first time we made like serious Mm -hmm. money off of music. There's nothing nothing like that in the UK. Like I have, I you know, this is... The infrastructure for hip hop and just music, specifically hip hop, but um, music in general in the U.S. is just uh, stuff is just on a whole nother level. Like I, I have, um, I try not to lament on it too much, but I do sometimes wonder, like, man, all the crazy work and years and effort I put in in the U.K. I do sometimes wonder, like, man, if I'd put in that same effort in the U.S., like, yeah, where man. would where would things kind of be? Because you know, I mean, British hip hop has only become popular in the past three or four years, right? Like, yeah, this is true. the first time where actually there are multiple British rappers who are doing 
who were doing well. I mean, prior to about 2015, 2016, you'd, you'd maybe have like one guy out there who's mm-hmm. doing well, you know, like there's, there's one guy who's kind of mainstream and then right. there's just everyone else is underground and there's just no, like, I mean, you know, I, I, I've had, I had some success with what I did, you know, with all my independent releases and just traveling around and hustling and yeah. organizing my own yep. tours and all that. But something like what you said there, you know, something like NACO where it's like, okay, you can do this and maybe some of it is the scale of the country as well. But I think also hip hop is so much more, eh, how would I put it? I mean, I mean, US USA is the home of hip hop, right? So, I mean, even the fact that you have a Christian hip hop scene, <laughs> do you, yeah, do you, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Like, like there's no Christian hip hop scene in the UK. Like you, you can't even, you, you can't, you can't afford to be that niche kind of thing. Like you could be a Christian hip hop artist, but there's no there's no scene. If I look at the US, I'm like, oh, wow, like you could just listen to Christian hip hop. And there's enough artists, events, fans, there's enough stuff going on that you can have that whole microcosm. Whereas in the UK with the size of the population and the popularity of the music, etc. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point, man. I think, dude, it, it, you know, that, and, and so it was the combination of what, everything you described with NACA, but having a spoken word background, because hip hop hadn't been successful at NACA, really. And then having the relationships to add to everything you just described by being in the Christian hip hop scene and being able to do a college show, make really good money off the college show and pull up and do a small church show and only do it for a couple of people and make very little money off of it, but build a lot of those relationships with fans that are still with me till this day. A lot of my fan base has been around with, has been with me for 10 years. You know, I remember you from the breaks. I remember you from the breaks. And it was like, yeah, man. And, and that and that is because of the luxury or the privilege or the advantage of actually being a Christian mm-hmm. hip hop artist, which people would think that's the opposite. Right. Oh, well, that's such a small thing. Well, it's like, you know, so you got like in, in British hip hop, you guys have like Skepta. Yeah. Right. And now it's kind of like he's like the face. He's the first one to really mm-hmm. break through and get all the accolades and the cosigns in Christian hip hop. Like we have like Lecrae, yeah. you know, and it, and it was almost like there was a point where just about anybody that was sort of affiliated with Lecrae could make some noise and do mm-hmm. some good stuff. And if you had a song, and I'm, I'm sure it's similar to what Skepta, like if, if you had a song with Skepta, if you were affiliated with that crew, you would benefit. And it was the same thing. It was like having a relationship with the Lecrae early on before he became a household name helped a ton in terms of building a lot of this early infrastructure to go and do church shows as well as non-Christian yeah. shows. I mean, even the idea of doing a church show is like super interesting to me. Like I've, I've never, <laughs> I don't know if those are, uh, maybe like here and there it might be a thing, but I've never seen, I've definitely never performed in a church and I've never seen somebody rap in a church ever in my life. Church shows are lit, yeah. dude. They're the most, because all these kids are like pent yeah. up and they like can't, they can't go to the Drake show. And so they go to your show and they're just super excited, yeah. dude. Church shows. Yeah, lit. no, I can imagine. It's just, it's just interesting. Cause it's, um, yeah, like it's just not a thing here. You know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really exist. Maybe it will in like five or 10 years, but as it stands, it's, uh, yeah, it's just not a thing. Um, but yeah, carry on from there. So I know you found it, um, you've got your own label, uh, King's Dream Entertainment. What, how did you, go about when did you found that and how did you go about uh, doing it yeah so and so so fast forward 2011 2012 we're starting to become successful starting to make some money 
And we know, I know that like, I just don't want it to be about me. Right. Cause that's, I mean, that's not a very Christian mentality in general, in my opinion. Like if, I'm, if I get successful, I feel like I have a level of moral responsibility to help other people become successful. Sure. Right. And, and so at this point, we'd figure some stuff out. We'd, fit, we'd had our own little network of shows, our own little network of artists and communities, our, our abilities to plug into NACA, make money at NACA, do all these different things. Um, our ability to, to, to get a ton of music recorded and mixed and video shot. Like we were fairly early to shooting videos. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just the logical conclusion of like, hey, I got some buddies around. They're dope. They're good. And uh, let me just help them out because it's the right thing yeah. to do. You know, if I could, if I could help some people out then not only can can they benefit from my platform that 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 took me 10 years to build but i could potentially benefit if they're successful and i could make money off of them at the time like that we didn't make any money for the first you know whenever you sign an artist you're not going to make any money and so i was just finding people that i knew had relationships with that don't have an audience but i feel like they have something in them and i would essentially say Hey man, instead of spending 10 years or five years figuring this out, like I could just, you could just plug into my system and the way I make music, the way I market music, the way I shoot videos, the way I do all these things. And let's get you profitable. Let's get, let's put some, let's get some money in your pocket. And so that's been a thing, man. So like I take an artist like Paul Russell, who I, you know, in my opinion, Paul is probably the most talented person I've ever worked with, you know, and Paul's a really interesting kid. He's from um, Atlanta born in Atlanta, raised in Dallas, and then ended up going to Cornell, comes from a really good family, good Cornell, Ivy League kid, uh, and just very, like very, just a cool kid, man. And he's just a freak when it comes to music. He's just so dope to me. And so we, we grew him, we were able to grow him from zero followers. He literally did not have any followers on any platforms as an artist. And he just cracked 6,000 Instagram followers. I think he cracked 5,000 Spotify followers. And he has, you know, 80,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. Music is getting used in Calvin Klein commercials. Has done a song with Lecrae already. You know, like all within a, you know, two-year window, you know. And he's actually making money off of his art. And, you know, he's able to get engaged and save for a wedding and all these different things. And so that to me is fun, man. That to me is dope. Especially when it's kids that are like good kids. Like, like he's, Paul's a good kid, man. He's a smart kid. And you just like, dude, like we're building stuff that we could pass on to our mm. kids someday. Like we're building catalog, we're building music that the publishing of that music will hopefully, you know, provide for generations to yeah. come, you know, that, that I'm seeing it like that. You no, know, that's awesome, man. I, I love that. I love the idea of, you know, building a legacy and something that something that lives on beyond you. I mean, I think that's what life is about in a lot of ways because we, we've only got so much time here on earth. So it's like, okay, well, you know, we do this and then, build yourself up and then help other people to build themselves up in some way, shape or form. Um, I do have a, I am curious actually, as a, as a sort of Christian hip hop artist in the U S how do you, um, how do you sort of navigate between the, the Christian world and the, and the secular world, both as an artist and I guess as a, as a man as well, how do you, yeah, like how how do you how do you strike how do you strike that balance? What's the what's the inter- interaction like? Do you have certain boundaries, whether that's in terms of artists you will or won't work with, or you know, 
types of shows you will or won't do or certain things in the music or whatever? How do you how do you balance that? I see it less of 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 a divide. Okay. Like I don't really see it as a us versus them view. I just see it more as like, man, we're all people. We all really want the same mm-hmm. things, you know? And to me, I have standards that are personal standards, but I don't view my art as explicitly just for Christians or just Christian art mm-hmm. or my YouTube channel or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, I mean, again, like our, like, we have music that's been used in like a ad, you know, with people that we may disagree with or brands that we, you know, we don't agree with everything, but nevertheless, the music is able to spread because of those relationships. Mm -hmm. And because of that, whether that's a Google ad or whatever. And so I do my best to live out my Christian faith, right. In every area, whether that's um, who I am in music, who I am on YouTube, who I am on social media, but, you know, to me, more importantly, it's who I am in my home, who I am with my son, who I am with my friends, with my family. That to me is priority number one. And, and everything else to me is the overflow of that. So I don't compartmentalize anything. And yeah, I, like my standards are very simple, man. Like if, if I could play this song in the car with my son, then I'm all gotcha. about it. You know, if I can't, then I don't <laughs> want to be a part of it. Gotcha. And it's just, it's just that. And, and it's not because it's not even because I think like language is bad or this is bad or whatever. It's just because I just want to be the same person. Mm. I want to be the same person in everything. So I don't want to, I don't want to put on a persona when I'm a rapper or around my rapper circle or put on a persona when I'm around my Christian circle. Mm. I just want to be the same guy and be as consistent as, as possible. And I think that to me has just been the way I've navigated and it's been fairly helpful that can be very confusing for a lot of christians more so christians than non-christians because non-christians would just be like oh man the music's dope or like oh bro i love this this video really helped me out a ton they're they tend to be more open and then they might discover the faith or they might hear something that reminded them of going to church with their grandma or something like that and uh and that's that's great uh it's the christians that get really tripped up by that the christians who are like Yeah, Yeah, they want to be in a bubble. They want to be segregated. They want to be, it's a lot of group Mm -hmm. think, right? It's a lot of like us versus them mentality. And I'm just not on that, man. Like, I think, I think people are people. I think we got to love people. Well, we, we, we need to be truthful. We need to be truthful when it's time to be truthful, but we also need to be helpful and we need to be empathetic and we need to listen. And that, that is just the way I, you know, it it says at the end of Acts, it says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, mm-hmm. right? Full of grace and truth. And so if you, you don't, if you just, if you're just about grace, if it's just all about grace, then that's, that's going to create just like a, a recklessness in everything. And if it's just about truth, then that's going to be like a very black or white law approach to everything sure. and a very cold approach. So I think striking that balance of grace and truth in how I interact with all people, even mm-hmm. Christians, is very helpful for me. And that's what I've been attempting and in, 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 in find the balance to yeah, do. No, because I was wondering how you sort of avoid being held hostage, perhaps by, you know, even some segments of your own audience or your own fan base. Um, that's something that, because I've seen it sort of happen to degrees to other people, right? Where it's like, okay, you're this thing, but then you 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 step slightly out of line. And, you know, now this person is like, hey, like, you know, you, you, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. 
et cetera. And everyone has a different, you know, everyone personally has a different way of navigating these kind of things. I mean, myself as a, as an artist, as a rapper, I've never, I've never labeled myself as a Christian rapper. Um, and I don't, I don't think of myself in that way. I, I am a Christian and I'm not ashamed to to say that if, if I'm doing an interview or even in certain songs, et cetera, like I'm, I'm happy to, to mention God. Um, but part of that is because I didn't want to, how would I put it? One, in terms of my music itself, I didn't want to limit my own music, right? Because mm. I, I am a Christian, but I I have other thoughts. I have other battles. I, I didn't want to feel like, okay, every song, I have to make this every single song Christian. I have to mention mm. Jesus every, every song, et cetera, because that felt very limiting as an artist. But then uh, secondly, I didn't want to be in a position where I'm kind of preaching to the choir where, mm. you know, if I label myself specifically this way, then there's a good chance I'm going to just unnecessarily put off people who could potentially be be fans and I could potentially get my message out to, but they might just like if an artist specifically labeled themselves as a, as a, as a Muslim rapper, um, mm -hmm. I might just think, oh, okay, that's not for me because I'm not, I'm not a Muslim. Um, and then lastly, yeah, just that, that thought of people, I don't know, trying to, trying to hold you to standards and limitations that you, you just kind of get, get boxed in so much. And maybe I think part of this is probably being in the UK as well. Maybe if I were in the US, it would have been kind of easier to be like, oh, okay, there's something, there's something here I can plug into. There's a scene, there's other artists, there's other people, there's a fan base where it's like, oh, okay, I can do that. And I'm not just going to be totally isolated and totally boxed in. Um, so that's kind of, that, that's my own personal experience with it. So it was really interesting, even when I was in the States in Atlanta last year, when um, I met yourself and uh, John Keith and, and Shepard and, you know, lots of other artists in the Christian hip hop scene. I was like, man, this is, this is interesting. Like I've never been with a group of Christian rappers before. Like that was the first time in my whole life, you know, um, <laughs> you know I've been in groups of Christians. I've been in groups of rappers, but I was just like, wow, this is like a, this is a thing. Like, you know, and it's just, uh, it kind of opened my eyes. It's interesting. I think it, to your point, I think what happens is I didn't set out to label myself as a Christian rapper. And that's, um, that wasn't my agenda or my like prerogative or in my mission statement. Like, man, my, my label exists to make Christian rap for Christian rap fans. Like, that's not something that is done. What happens is maybe because of how it is here in the States is your tribe will find yeah. you. Your, your, your people will find you, your tribe will find you. And, and it's not, and, and, and when you, when I, if I start fighting against that, if people are like, yo, like you're collaborating with Christian rappers, you're, you're, you perform at churches sometimes, uh, you're on Christian rap, Spotify playlist, <laughs> you're, you're in this ecosystem. And if I start pushing against that, with some of your very, like, I've said everything you've mm -hmm. said before, like literally to the bone. And I've, I've actually said in the Huffington Post article, and the, and the article was, you know, dream junkies, but don't call them Christian rappers. Like literally, and that was supposed to be like off the record. Like, could we just not talk about the label Christian rappers? And they like finessed okay. it into oh. being a whole article about how we're Christian rappers who don't want to be gotcha. Christian rappers, gotcha. right? And it's just like, of course, of course, of course, of Huffington course. Post would do that, right? <laughs> and so, but when, when, so I said it to say, when I start pushing back against mm. that, you know, when I start pushing back, then I just, I'm the one that looks crazy. Gotcha. And I'm the one that's like, 
what are you even talking about? You know, so instead of, instead of trying to explain what I don't want and what I, what I want to be against, I'm just going to do what I do. And if Christian fans or fans or Christian rap fan or whatever, man, great. And, and they, you know, there was a website, uh, a Christian rap vlog, Loom Hip Hop, uh, it was two years ago, a year and a half ago, labeled me as one of the new OGs of Christian hip hop, oh, okay. right? And it was me, Lecrae, Bizzle, and Derek Minor, which, first of all, like, and those are all friends of mine, but they're like, those guys are way bigger and more popping than I am and really like in there. And so for me to be on this list, but what it did was it just said, you know, if this is how some people view me, if people view me as like a statesman, a, a leader in this movement, right? Even though I, I didn't have never thought of myself as, as a leader in this movement, then I'm going to be way more beneficial to the movement and to where it goes from the inside than from the outside. Mm. I'm going to be way more helpful steering the culture where I want it to go from, from just embracing it than saying I'm against yeah, yeah. it. But because that, if that's the perception of me. And so I've just, I've, it, I think it's more helpful for me because I'm already in it. Um, to just be like, hey, this is what it is. I'm a Christian hip hop artist. I'm a Christian artist. I'm not going to shy away from anything Christian related. You want to call me a Christian husband, Christian sure. father, <laughs> Christian any, like I'm Christian yeah, everything, yeah. right? But we get so triggered with Christian rap, rapper for some reason. And I just like, eh. I, and if I'm already here and through providence, God's given me favor here, then I'm going to be faithful to where I'm at, even though I would love to be in other spaces and I would love to be at other festivals and I would love to be, you know, and I think I will be in, in God's timing, but I'm not going to push against it. I just don't, it just, it just doesn't seem very helpful gotcha. for where I'm at. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's interesting, man. No, it's really interesting. Cause it's, uh, it, it's like, uh, it's like two worlds that I am familiar with, but I view separately. And so mm -hmm. it's really interesting to sort of see, what's happening in the USA in that regard and seeing these things, you know, co combine to create this, this ecosystem. And, uh, you know, what, yeah. And you're, yeah. and you're not alone. I'm sorry yeah, to ahead. cut you off, but you're not yeah. alone. Like, like, like Curtis King is in a similar mm -hmm. spot. I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the Curtis King. He's a Christian. He's a YouTuber. He's a Christian. He's a rapper. Uh, he's a producer, but he's not a Christian rapper or a Christian producer. Mm -hmm. And, and so what, what I do, what I have fun doing is like, if I'm doing a show, I've done like showcases or festivals, I love bringing people like that out and cross pollinating different audiences. And then it's like my audience will discover him and be like, Oh, but he's not really a Christian rapper, but he's dope. And his music's not vulgar yeah, and yeah. it's not against my worldview. And then he's like, yo, this whole world is amazing. Like, I love you guys. Like, and what ends up happening is guys like that or guys like yourself will almost be like advocates for it. Mm -hmm. So when, so then when we're out in public or, I, and I'm not there and somebody says, yo, Christian rap is trash. Those dudes are all bigots. You could be like, <laughs> no, no, they're not actually. They're actually super yeah. dope. And so it's just the representation of the community ends up being better when we work people in. And again, it's not a us versus them. Like, Zuby, you don't talk about Jesus enough, so you can't, <laughs> you can't come rock a show with me or we can't do yeah, a song yeah. together, right? No, it's like, dude, no, no, that doesn't make any mm -hmm. sense. Like, let's, let's, let's do that because our worldviews align. So a bunch of guys like you, uh, Curtis King, JB, guys that are maybe from outside the Christian rap community, but they love the community once they get exposed to it and they meet people and they're like, whoa, this is dope. I wish I would have had this. Like this would have been so much fun, yeah. you know? So I feel That's you though. Cool. And how do you feel the, the scene is going and growing? Is that, um, where, where do you see it being in the next five to 10 years? I see it 
and this is where I, this is what I'm hoping to do is like I have a community of artists, predominantly Christian, not all, but a lot of them are Christian. I do like my Fan Love Friday mm-hmm. stream, and I do a lot of coaching. And that that sounds weird when I say coaching. I feel like I'm I'm selling cool. some like master I, course I, I, I or do, something. I, I, I do coaching too. So don't worry. <laughs> We do like weekly Zoom calls where I give them a lot of advice. A lot of guys I pull to the side and I help them, you know, build their businesses, build their merch up. And we've had some amazing success stories, man, just just from guys that I've just kind of just helped mentor along the way. Guy just this week had a merch launch, uh, followed everything I encouraged him to do, the system I helped set up. And this is not someone that I'm um, that assigned to me, but I've just been really hands on with. And uh, he did like a twenty thousand dollar merch wow. launch. Like he dropped a, mer- a piece of merch that sold twenty thousand in nice. a week. Twenty thousand dollars, and it's just like you hear that, it, like seeing that stuff. So what my goal is, man, is I want Christians who are part of this community and non Christians to own their process, to own their creativity, to own their mm-hmm. art, and to put out as much of it as they can in a very creative fashion, and to go beyond just being Christian rappers, but to, um, build their own tribes, mm-hmm. right. Build their own tribes. Some of the, some of those tribes are going to be explicitly Christian. Some aren't. And that's what I'm really, I, I want to see that. And so I think the new norm is going to be guys like my buddy, Nick D who is a Christian who goes to church, who loves Jesus. You hear some of that in his music, but his audience is very diverse. He has a lot of audience uh, in Brazil. He's dropping a song every week and it's just like, it's just spreading like wildfire, you know, like my buddy Bartholomew Jones, who is really dope. He has a, um, a coffee line called, uh, it's called uh, Coffee Black. And it's all about the history of how coffee came from Africa and the real origins of it. And so he has merchandise and he sells his own coffee and, and it's super dope and he's monetizing it very well. And I could give you just example after example of guys like this, that they're not necessarily in this like Christian rap bubble. They're expanding it and they, they, they cross pollinate, but they're expanding it. And so once we have more and more people out there in different pockets and building their own audiences and they're cross promoting and cross collaborating, I feel like that's when the entire movement is going to grow and get bigger, not as a singular one movement, but as people expanding it and going further and further out. Another example I could give you, and this is not somebody I'm in any way responsible for their success, but I feel like is the new blueprint is Toby Wigway, who is an artist out of Houston. And him and his wife, Kat, they started doing these things called Get Twisted Sundays before they were married. And he would just do like raps over popular instrumentals. She would twist his hair. That's evolved into him him uh, doing a video a week and being on tour and, you know, just building an empire, man. And he's a Christian and he's a rapper. He's not a Christian rapper. And he it has some crossover in our world. He was a rapzilla freshman. That's like our big Christian hip hop blog. I think that's going to be the new prototype. That's going to be the new format. And I think you're going to see the, the community evolve and get bigger and bigger and bigger because there's going to be a bunch of people that just go beyond the goalpost, beyond the current goalpost. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, about your, your YouTube channel. Cause you, you put out a, a lot of content every week um, on a range of stuff. So you go into, you know, you do go into some socio-political stuff. You do do um, music reviews, business advice, of course, your actual music itself. You do a whole bunch of, you do a whole bunch of things. What it, what is it that drives you to do that or makes you feel compelled to speak on certain things? 
Yeah, man, that's that's so funny you say that. So like, if people look at my YouTube or even at like my my brand, like it probably won't make a lot of sense on the surface because I really do just talk about whatever I feel compelled to talk about, and and it covers a variety of topics. My overall mission and vision of what I'm attempting to do is King's Dream is encouraging, empowering people to live God's dream for their life, right? King's Dream outliers is what I'm, what I'm, the, the tribe I'm building, and I really just want people to be statistical anomalies in these different facets of life. So I want people to be outliers with their finances. The average American has $10,000 in debt, living paycheck to paycheck, just, just a mess financially, right? I want, I want to give people the resources and the inspiration when they hear my story of me and my wife paid off $45,000 in debt in 18 months, saved six months of living expenses. That was the key variable for me becoming a successful entrepreneur mm-hmm. was learning how to handle money and pay mm-hmm. off my debt. Then learning how to save money, which ultimately taught me how to manage money and just view money as a transaction of value. So that's one facet that I'm really passionate about. People will hear me talk about that. Then there's like ownership and empowering artists to own their music, own their masters, own their process, uh, not take out debt and take out record contracts before it's too Mm -hmm. soon. And uh, that's another facet of it. And then recently it's been really about like, man, I want to see people be outliers in the sense that in society, there is a us versus them right now, especially with everything that's Mm -hmm. happening. I want people, especially my white brothers and sisters who uh, are, they don't quite understand what's going on or why it's going on to be statistical anomalies and to hear the different pain and the different struggles from different communities and to be empathetic and to, to seek to understand before seeking to be understood, mm-hmm. to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And I feel like if we all move towards trying to understand each other, then I feel like that is where we're ultimately going to see progress. So that's like another facet of it. And, and then that, that's because that's my life. Like my life has been, man, I've been, the, I've, been, I've benefited by and large so much from just amazing black people, black Christians, black men who've just loved me well and, and shared the truth with me and encouraged me and empowered me and never made me feel white, uh, make guilty about my yeah. whiteness or anything like that. Right. Um, but we're truthful with me. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm an outlier in that. Like I have amazing relationships that the majority of my very close friends are black. And that wasn't by accident. That was intentional. That was by providence. That was by me learning to, to shut up and listen instead of always trying to be heard. Right. And so I'm hoping that some of the current stuff, when I'm talking about social, social issues, humanitarian issues, I would sure. say that we would be just, just humble to listen, man. And that's not to say that, um, that white people don't go through struggles in America or dismiss anybody's mm-hmm. pain. Um, but it's to say that, man, we're in such a unique moment in history right now that uh, we can um, we can really enact some change. And I feel like I'm an outlier in that, like you can't pin me into the corner as like some liberal snowflake yeah, no, sure, or like some social justice no, no, no. warrior. Like I'm neither, I'm not a Democrat. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, I bet you politically, me and you have way more in common than we don't have in mm-hmm. common. You know what I mean? Um, I'm very much so for empowerment. We just talked about, you know, financial literacy yeah. and becoming debt free and managing money and being a go getter mm-hmm. and being empowered to build businesses. So I think the the social aspect is like it doesn't have to be an either or polar opposite, yeah. right? It can't be like people are victims and they just need to pull themselves out by their bootstraps, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, no, we can acknowledge that there's trauma and there's pain Mm -hmm. while at the same time saying, hey, 
this is how we actually build generational wealth. And this is how we turn the corner. Yeah. And this is how we make progress. Like, I think it's an and both. Yeah. Why, why is that so, why is that so difficult for people to understand these days? Because what seems to have happened in the last, I want to say like the last five to seven years is it seems really difficult for, well, one, for people to be honest, right? <laughs> I think honesty mm -hmm. is just, is just lacking. It's like, it seems that agenda comes before principles these days, right? Sticking to mm. this, like, you know, whatever, forget the principles, whatever helps feed this agenda is what people are going with. People are, you know, happy to just tell lies and misrepresent people and be totally disingenuous, et cetera. Maybe it's always been like this and it's just that I'm older and I'm noticing it, but it seems like this is happening more and more, right? The idea to just demonize anyone who disagrees with you on anything right you voted this part you voted for this guy i voted for that guy so i'm gonna unfriend you on facebook we can't talk anymore right like i've heard talk to people who've lost their you know lost their relationships like no longer speak to their parents uh have, have lost friends etc because they don't like the way they voted or they don't like a couple of their beliefs or whatever and this seems relatively new so i do sort of wonder what is it that's going on at sort of a, a deeper level in society where it's so hard, where, you know, we, we can disagree on something, but I'm like, yo, like, I'm not gonna, that's, that's my, that's my bro. Like, that's my dude. That's my, that's my friend. I, I'm not gonna, you know, you can even have a, have a passionate debate on something, but at the end of the day, it's not like, oh, that's it, man. I'm, I'm unfollowing, I'm deleting, <laughs> I'm deleting you off everything. And, and it's just like, it, it's such an immature it's just a very immature thing. So when I'm seeing these adults, I mean, you see it on Twitter, you've got people who are in their fifties and their sixties and they're behaving like, like, like children, you know? And I'm just kind of like, you know, you can have a disagreement, but come on, can't we be like adults about this and just talk and be open? And, you know, if, why don't you just meet in a room and, and hash it out, do a podcast together? Like, what, you know, just, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the I don't know what the root of that is. I think I think it's twofold. I don't yeah. either, by the way, but I think it's twofold. I think one is you have people who feel like they aren't being heard. Mm. And so what's happening is when you feel like you're not being heard, TG, uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes had a really interesting quote this week. He said, being listened to is so similar to being loved that I don't know the difference a lot mm. of times right? Just being listened, just being like heard, right? So I think you have one group of people that feel so dismissed, right? And just feel so, ah, like people just don't care to listen mm -hmm. to me. And so what's happening is that group has been further and further dismissed and further and further um, viewed as disposable to, to, to a degree, mm -hmm. or at least that's the feeling mm -hmm. that they feel, right? And so they're, when you dismiss people they're going to go further and further and push on the other extreme, yeah. right? So the so so the, the, in the most extreme sense of the mm -hmm. voice, right, of of that representation. So it goes from, hey, I think we have some structural issues that we need to address that have impacted law enforcement and impacted our society as a mm -hmm. whole that go back decades um, to breadlining and uh, Jim Crow and the war on drugs, and these things are still dealing with And we have to address some of these things and, and rethink how we're doing society and rethink why 
is, you know, the average net worth of a white family in America, $150,000 and average net worth of a black family in America is Mm $15,000. Why is there this huge disproportion? Why are there these, why is one out of every three black men going to be in jail or, uh, or dead, have been in jail or dead by the age of 25? That's a real statistic. Why? And, and so, and so the, the 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 response is some the response feels like this shut up you're making it up mm. there's nothing wrong shut mm. up you're making it up and then you and, th- and what is that that's gaslighting right so a candace owens or whoever even though i think they mean well you're dismissing what that person is feeling and, and the experiences the individual experiences that maybe somebody could say well oh, that's anecdotal sure. you know the, just because the majority of black people have had negative experiences with police and doesn't mean that all police mm-hmm. are evil and i would agree not all police yeah, yeah. are evil but there are these patterns that we're seeing. And when you see patterns, you, you have to acknowledge the pattern. So you got one side that's saying, hey, we're hurting. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've been mistreated. Hey, here are the things. And you got another part that's saying, shut yeah. up. You don't know what you're talking about. You're making yeah, see, it all up, is, which is infuriating the other yeah, side. And, and then, it becomes, then it becomes, don't hunt me. I'm being hunted. It, you know, it, there's yeah. terrorism on the black community, yeah, right? Yeah, and so yeah. that, those are the two extremes. And what happens is everybody locks into their own echo chamber. And both sides. And everybody. And sorry to jump in. And both sides. Go ahead. What you just described, depending on what inverted commas side somebody is on, the other side also feels similarly. Yeah. Because, because you, you can't, so you can't deny that uh, poor white people are experiencing struggles in America. There's, there are poor white people that are experiencing struggles. It's just when you look at those ratios, that is where it, it, it's like, well, but there's so many more black people that are disproportionately mm. poor. And the logical conclusion of all this is, is there's a couple. Black people are making it up and they're victims, <laughs> right? And the Democratic Party has flipped them and tricked them into being on the welfare state, right? And I'm not saying the Democratic Party is innocent. Yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't like the options sure, at all, sure. right? Uh, but that's one option is that they've all been tricked and they're all victims. The other option, which is the racist mm. option, black people are just inferior. They're just, they're just an inferior race. They're just lazy. They're inferior, which anybody that has ever had an experience with anybody who's black will be like, no, that's just not true. That doesn't make any mm. sense. And the third option is that, well, there are some issues structurally, um, dare I say systemically, that we have to deal with and we have to address on the wealth gap, on where this stuff comes from. And it's not as simple as just work mm. hard. That may be true on an individual person-by-person mm. basis, but when you're talking about in macros and you're talking about um, all these different things, why are black people more likely to be in poverty? Why are they more likely to be over-policed? Yeah. Why are they more likely to, uh, to be uh, killed in the custody mm-hmm. of police? Why are they more likely to be unarmed and be killed? And like all these ratios go sure, up and sure. up and up. So it's not that, oh, it's just all police are mm-hmm. evil, right? That's, that's, that's the response. Yeah. That's the, we had Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and then we have the Black Panther mm. Party, and then it, it's just gonna, it, you're gonna get more and more of a militant, we're tired of explaining, yeah. you know, do you, do type you know of a, response. Do you know a big problem, I think, and th- this might sound weird, is, you know, I think uh, may- maybe, because a lot of this coincides with social media, and <laughs> this might be controversial, maybe it's not good everybody having a voice in a platform. Right. Maybe I don't, not. I'm not saying this in any sort of censorship way, but the idea that because what happens is, how would I put it? You there there are a lot of dumb arguments out there, right? And there are a lot of very hyperbolic, like you are sort of saying, right? It gets pushed to this very hyperbolic 
you know, when I when I go on Twitter and I see someone talking about this is what it's like to be a black man in America. Every time you leave your house, you don't know if you're going to come back. The police are hunting down, hunting. But right when I read stuff like that, I'm kind of like, bro, come on, man. Like, dude, you know, you know, you see, and it's got like 100,000 likes and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that's not, you know, someone to me, I read that and I'm like, okay, that's not helpful. Whereas, you know, someone on the other side might say someone just see someone just say, okay, like, just, just do this. This is all that needs to be done. And that may also seem unhelpful. And I think that it's actually relatively rare. I think the voices that are sensible and willing to listen to the other and not sort of straw man, the dumbest version of the, you, you see what I mean? <laughs> straw man, the dumbest yeah, version yeah. of the other side's argument. Cause yeah. You know, people have this idea that like, oh, you know, all these conservatives just think X, right? They totally, you know, they don't, they don't even believe in racism. They, they deny slavery. I'm, I'm like, no, 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 they don't. No, they don't. Right. You've got people who think that the way you fix the problem, you, fo the, the biggest difference I see is you have people who focus more on the individual and you have people who focus yeah. more on the system. And the reality is both of those things are factors. I mean, they, they have to be to at different times amongst different groups, et cetera, which one is predominant. You know, if you go back a hundred years ago, right, you've got laws on the book, which say, mm -hmm. you know, black people may not do this, women may not do this, et cetera, right? That is clear. Okay. The system on a very fundamental level needs, needs change. It is not equal. You can, you can point things out. Right. And then right. when that is ironed out, you, you may still have some overhangs and some historical aspects that are sort of bleeding into the future, but you do also have um, issues with individuals. You do also have issues of personal responsibility and aspects of culture and community and w which, which play in. And oftentimes it seems like both sides per se don't want to admit anything that goes outside that. I kind of had this conversation with some of my, with some of my friends, some of my fellow black friends the other day, right? You know, mm -hmm. a couple people were sort of not totally, but mostly taking the idea that everything is to do with the system, right? Like everything, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm here saying like, look guys, if someone robs, rapes, murders, steals, et cetera, like, sorry, but I put that, I put that on them as does, as does the justice, right? The judge doesn't, the judge doesn't care. Right. So mm -hmm. my opinion is, look, we need to hold people to higher standards. We don't want to just make excuses for people. Yes. You know, it's like, pause. I understand history. Like, I know this, but yeah. there are, I, I find it personally quite, I, I almost find it a little bit insulting, right? The idea that, okay, you know, let's just hold black people to a lower standard. You see what I mean? Like, I, I find that, I find that idea very insulting. Like people don't say it that way. But oftentimes that's sort of what it boils down to in practice, right? Just constantly making excuses for bad behavior or reducing actual standards for things. And I'm like, no, like, I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's the way forward. So, and then of course people like, you know, flood me saying that I'm, I'm denying racism and I'm denying Jim Crow. And I'm, I'm like, no, I, I've already acknowledged these things. I'm just saying that if you are, we're in 2020 right now, we have all this opportunity, right? Black Americans are the richest, most privileged black people in the, in the world, right? So some of, some of the most privileged people in the world, in the world period, like on a, on a global scale, you know, if you look at America specifically, 
the story can kind of look different. If you look on a wider scale, I'm kind of like, man, if you're in the USA in 2020, in this era, like whatever your, your color, your gender, whatever, like, sure, I can see how some things are going to be harder or easier for certain people. But from my own personal worldview, I just don't buy the idea that like, you can't get ahead or, you know, it's like, it's, it's so difficult now. It's, it's, I'm kind of like, man, and I've seen, I've seen so many people. I mean, look, look, look at yourself, look, look, you know, you've told your own story. I'm kind of like, I've seen so many people who have done this now because people yeah. like to jump to, oh, well, Zuby, you know, you grew up like this. So you're kind of not allowed an opinion. You can't judge, et cetera. And, you know, and it, it, I don't know, I, I find it kind of frustrating, you know? So I think people focus on the different things, but it gets tricky because people don't want to be honest and they don't want to give any, they don't want to give any ground to the other sides. Yeah. You know what I mean, I think, I think there's, I think there's validity in that. I think even what you said about like, um, uh, you know, the, the man who tweets like, this is what it's like to be a black man in America. I can't do this and this and da da da. Mm. Right. Um, and, and, and you might hear that and be like, oh man, he's, uh, you know, that's just hy hyperbolic yeah. or whatever. Right. And I'm like, yeah. Or maybe that's trauma speaking, mm. right. Maybe that's PTSD speaking. Right. And as someone who's, gone to therapy and discovered I had PTSD because a lot of the stuff in my childhood, mm -hmm. this is like within a year ago, it was very, it was very helpful. I would, I would relate it to like, if you or me has a sister or aunt or a cousin and she comes to us and says, Hey, um, I I've been assaulted. Mm -hmm. This, this happened. Mm -hmm. I've been assaulted. I feel this way now. And I feel like when I go out, all men can just assault yeah, yeah. me whenever they want and they can, right. Our response as an empathetic human being would be like, well, what happened? Mm. How can I help? We wouldn't be like, for real, <laughs> like he was assaulted. Come yeah. on. Like women don't get assaulted anymore. Like not, not 2020, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, come on. Right. Instead of saying like, okay, you, okay. Dang, that happened. I'm so sorry you feel that way. Like, let, let's talk about it. Tell me more. Let me listen. Can I refer you to therapy? Mm. How can I help you? Right. Uh, and I think that is what kind of kind of happens. And so I would, I, I, if you were to say, or you or um, uh, a Candace Owens were to say, like, "Hey, don't don't tell me there's systemic racism. Don't tell me there's white privilege. That's not helpful yeah. to me because that's used as a tool to, you know, d demean me and my mm -hmm. worth." Right? I would be like, "Cool, like that's if that's how you yeah, feel, yeah. fine." But don't make that the talking head and the universal standard for all black mm, people. To I, be see, like, I think this now can't yeah. say that because of well, because that's what that's what we're mm -hmm. getting. Like Candace Owens put something out, and now the response of almost every single white person on social media mm -hmm. who doesn't agree that there's structural mm -hmm. issues that need to be adjusted is, well, look at this Candace yeah, Owens yeah. video, and it's like you no black people aren't a no, monolith. No, no. Like no one person can yeah. be like this person speaks on behalf yeah. of all black and, people. And, and, and also like Candace Owens is an entertainer, like not to say that her feelings are invalid, but she's entertaining. She's being polarizing. She, I understand what she is doing. Mm -hmm. I just think it's unhelpful when there's the overwhelming majority of black people on my timeline mm -hmm. on people I know in real life on people that, you know, I've, I've been around things I've seen with my mm -hmm. own eyes experiences that are like, this doesn't feel like it's a equal system even though maybe not all the laws are racist. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, 
this is how it looks. And here are experiences of my son and my nephew mm-hmm. and my brother, right? And so like my pastor's wife, she's Hawaiian and black. And she's been reposting stuff of her brother, who's extremely educated, was the superintendent of the Oceanside School District, dr- lives in a nice neighborhood, drives a nice car. And he's been sharing these. And he's not a snowflake liberal, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, and he's just been sharing these stories of like, guys, like, I'm not immune to this, despite how educated I am, despite... And he's sharing these horrible stories of being profiled and being pulled mm-hmm. over. And you know what I mean? And it's like, you can't tell me black people are making it up when 99% of black men that I know are telling me I've had these experiences at some point in time. Yeah, this is, and 99% of white men have not. This is, yeah, see, this is where it gets really weird because this is where the anecdote becomes very powerful. And it's, it's, it's complicated because... So I have conversations with people. I, you know, they could even be, be friends. You know, we could have even had very similar, very similar uh, circumstances that we've grown up in, et cetera. And I'm hearing some, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, dismissing what anyone says, but their legitimate experiences are totally different to mine, right? So, right. so even, right. I, you know, I'll, I'll be talking with my friends and, you know, we'll be like, okay, let's share some stories of, you know, how many, how you know, share stories of things you've experienced. Right. And I can, I can say very honestly, I, you know, at 33 years old and as someone who's been to over a hundred cities and towns in the UK and 33 countries, et cetera. I have experienced a, a minute level of racism, like very, mm-hmm. very, very little, like me personally. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm not here saying that other people don't, but I guess the problem is the the mainstream narrative, certainly, is that mm-hmm. this is the black experience, right? Like it, it, mm-hmm. it's just like this. So the voice is sort of, I feel like my voice, you were talking before about voices not being heard, right? So if I'm, wa- I'm sitting there, well, I'm watching some debate on YouTube or there's something on TV and maybe they have a, they're having a discussion about some racial issues on TV and they'll have three black people who are all there, right? That, and in this case, they are actually like very, you know, very, they are the, they are the very left-wing progressives and they are, you know, screaming white privilege and institutional, right? Everything's racism, 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 black man, white man, white. And that, that's what frustrates me because I'm like, yo, mm-hmm. the, the UK is not some, the UK is one of the least racist countries in the world. Like just saying that upsets people. And then when I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, tell me where, where's this paradise that you think is way less racist than the UK by, by, by what measure? And people then come with their stories of things they've experienced. And I'm like, that doesn't, I hear you, but that doesn't invalidate what I'm saying. I'm not saying the UK is perfect. I'm not saying there's no racism mm-hmm. in the UK, but go to parts of Asia, go to parts of, of, of Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, et cetera. And I've, and I've, you know, and I'm like, what, what are you, what are you comparing to here? Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the issue because, it um yeah I don't know and and I and I I think the reason I have an aversion to that narrative is ultimately ultimately it's because I believe it keeps people I believe it keeps people disempowered right that's the that's where it fundamentally leads to me is so because my view is like okay look even if say say I say say someone is coming at me with these points and I say okay I let's say, let's say I, I, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you these things. Like I may not, I may not agree totally, but say I give you this, what now, right? Like what do, 
if I'm giving advice to an 18-year-old black guy, a 15-year-old black guy, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Why do I want to make him feel, you know, you, you've got to be very careful here because, yeah, sure, you want people to be heard, but you also have to be very careful about not making people feel like the world is out to get them and feel yeah. inferior and not to feel, you know, that's yeah. why I don't like, you know, it's another reason I don't like this idea of white privilege because it's like, so you're telling black people that no matter what, there just is this thing called white privilege. It's, it's immutable. So you're always going to be, you know, the whole world is always going to be looking at you a little bit. Blah. And some people, are, some people are like, yeah, that's how it is. And I'm like, no, that's not, to me personally, <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what I believe. And I don't think it's, I don't think you want to be telling whole generations of people that because it also, and, and you see the effect, right? It creates resentment. You get a lot of people now who are sort of, pretty anti-white, you know, like, like they've taken that and kind of run with it to the, you know, white people are bad kind of thing. They've sort of run to that conclusion and they're not fulfilling their own potential because they believe that the game is rigged. And if the game is very rigged, you know, if the game is very rigged, it's, it's kind of fair not to want to play, right? If we're playing Monopoly. And, yeah. yeah. I, I see the logical conclusion of that. I, I think in, in my experience and again like we're talking right anecdotal yeah. I, and i would i would say just just to touch on that, i'd say the anecdotal pushback would be fine and if we didn't have all the statistics mm. right if we didn't have black people more likely to experience poverty more likely to be over police more likely to be racially profiled mm. um more likely to be killed by a police officer and more likely to be unarmed and killed by a police officer mm-hmm. so if if you throw all that out and we just had anecdotes, then I'd be like, well, yeah, Zuby, I could see what mm-hmm. you're saying, right? And then, and then, so so I think there's that. I think, I feel you on the empowerment, yeah. right? I feel you on the empowerment. To me, the logical conclusion is is not, well, I guess this is just how it is. You get to be a second degree citizen. Yeah. I don't think that's the logic to me. And and this is this is tough for me, like personally, like in real time, mm-hmm. like I, my son is half yeah. black, right? And um, his best friends, Theo and Raya, uh, and, and this is a whole nother <laughs> quick side rail. I get a lot of this, like, well, what about black fatherlessness? Well, what about black families? Mm-hmm. Well, what about this? Right. My best friend belief runs a YouTube channel called belief in fatherhood. It's an entire YouTube channel with 250,000 subscribers about black fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> like, so don't tell me black people aren't talking yeah. about fatherhood. Don't tell me black people aren't talking about black on black crime. Like, who according to who you know what i mean like because i because that's all my black friends are talking Mm -hmm. about fatherhood and marriage and being more present in the home and being a good dad and right like that's what i'm Mm -hmm. seeing you know so that that, that's a side that's a side step uh but uh he just had the talk with his Mm -hmm. sons right and this is this is going to by proxy impact my son because they talk right my son is five and a half so we're wrestling with like how do we preemptively share this stuff with my son in a way that empowers him, that reminds him that you're created in the image of mm-hmm. God, that, you, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have limitless potential, that you can do anything you set your mind to, right? How do we address these things in a way that's helpful and empowering while at the same time acknowledging that in this world, there will be trouble. Mm-hmm. In this world, there will be issues. And, and, and the easiest way I could, I could explain it is, is, is parallel like this. I, just, just follow me for a second. No one had the, hey man, um, I know you love basketball, but just so we're clear, there's never been an Armenian guy that's made it to basketball. That doesn't mean you can't make it. That just means that when we're talking about genes and basketball, <laughs> you're five foot ten, bud. <laughs> the average basketball player is this height, right? Versus my nephew, Samaje, who's black. He's, you know, uh, 
160 pounds. He's about to be a sophomore, 10th grade. I don't know how you guys, right? Uh, Me acknowledging that I don't have the optimal genetics to thrive in the game of basketball doesn't mean that I can't play basketball. doesn't mean that I'm going to be trash at basketball. It doesn't even mean that I can't make it to the NBA and be a great basketball player someday, right? It just means that I have to acknowledge that I'm five foot ten and a half and my nephew is six foot two. And though I'm quicker and faster than him now and I could beat him and I got to play, at some point I'm going to have to switch up my game. I'm going to have to really work on my fadeaway. I'm not going to be able to blow <laughs> past him because he's going to develop. And so I think an, an acknowledgement of that isn't saying, Ruslan, you're a trash basketball player and you might as well not even play because look, all these other guys. No, like I'm, I'm fairly confident enough that if I had a chance to play with Michael Jordan tomorrow, mm. I would step out on the court yeah, and play with Michael course, Jordan tomorrow, right? Like I'm not afraid. Yeah. But at the same time, like we have to acknowledge the differences. We have to acknowledge the advantages. We have to acknowledge that these things are real, not in a way that creates white guilt. I've had a lot of white people oh, DM me DM me and apologize. <laughs> I had somebody apologize to me, Zuby, to me and my family for their whiteness today. Yeah. And I was just like, first of all, why are you apologizing to me? Second of all, I don't think the practical, logical conclusion of any of this is for yeah. you to DM people and apologize, yeah. right? Like, so, so I think that's the, that like, it's not white. I don't want people, white people to feel guilty. I don't want people, white people to feel ashamed. Um, I don't want, I don't want any of that. I just wanted to be like, hey, like, let's just acknowledge that like, bruh, I'm five foot 10 and it's going to be harder for me to make it into the NBA and play at an elite level. And I don't think that that's a negative thing. That's reality. And had somebody had that conversation with me earlier, maybe it would have been helpful. Maybe I would have been offended initially and be like, how dare you tell me that I'm five foot 10 and I'm white and I could never go to the Armenians have never gone to the NBA. So I think that's the, that's the, that is the tough part in all of this is it's so much of it is dependent on the person who receives yeah. it, right? So much of it is in their pair. So I'm with you, bro. I want to empower the individual. So in my home, like my son is learning how to do video and shoot. He has a little iPad he runs around with and he's shooting yeah. video. My niece is learning how to yeah. edit video, right? She comes, she's, she's a, she comes from a foster kid. She just met her mom, you know, 15 years ago. And I could trace a lot of that back to structural racism and the, the remnants of all my wife's sisters growing up in foster homes because of the war on mm. drugs and because of how harshly sentenced the their parents were for petty drug offenses, right? Like this, this isn't, this is one person yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> like this just yeah, happened, yeah. right? One person ago, people were getting sentenced extremely unfairly. And we know that the number one thing to build generational wealth, at least in America, I'm not, I'm assuming in the UK is home ownership. Mm. And being able to pass down property and being able to put money down on property because you have equity in your property. Yeah. And if we look at redlining, if we look at white flight, this stuff is not that long ago. Like this stuff is fairly recent mm-hmm. that like, and Zuby, in a really real way, I feel it because of, I see what it's done to my wife's, uh, my, 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 my uh, father-in-law, sure, my sure. mother-in-law, right? Hardworking, good people, not lazy go-getters, right? And there's still things that they've experienced that are just not mm-hmm. fair. The amount of crime, the, the pettiness of the crime to the sentences they sure. served, right? The, 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 ramific- the ramifications of that on the rest of their daughters, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, it, it's tough, man. It's heavy stuff. So I just, and I think that, and I'm, and I'm not, I haven't even experienced it personally. I'm a white man. I'm just looking at it by proximity and saying, wow, I'll, 
why have all my black friends experienced mm-hmm. this stuff? This is not all, a oh, lot, yeah. right? Um, this is crazy. So, so this is where I think it's frustrating is that when then a Candace Owens says these mm-hmm. things, it's, it's just, it, it comes off so disingenuous and it comes off like you're completely dismissing it in the experience of hundreds of thousands of millions of people and just telling them that like, oh, shut up. You're just making it up. That's mm. eatery. And yeah, that then it infuriates it's, them it's, even it's more. A, it's a tricky one. And, you know, a big part of it is that people communicate differently. You know, people just communicate differently. Like I'm super, super like I'm in the bottom 2% of the population in neuroticism. So I'm like way calmer, far less volatile, way less Mm -hmm. sort of emotionally driven than the average person by, by a mile. Right. So I can see and hear things and I don't, I don't interpret them or even mean them. I, I can say something and someone can interpret it a certain way. And it's like, no, I didn't mean it that way. Like I just, I kind of cut through the, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to do better in some ways at, um, how would I put it? Acknowledging people's feelings, making it obvious that I acknowledge people's mm-hmm. feelings, right? But my general communication style is very concise and direct. So, mm-hmm. and if people are concise and direct with me, I don't take... I don't take offense to it, right? That's not, I don't, I don't. So that's the way I communicate. That's kind of the way I like to be communicated to. It's not so touchy and feely and all that kind of stuff. And I understand that a lot of people are like that. And I think, I mean, I've, 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 I've met Candace, right? I've been on her podcast. I, I've, I've spoken to her before. She's, she's yeah. brilliant, and by the way. She's very eloquent. With her specifically, I know certainly, of course, there's the factor of, you know, you know, you, you sort of mentioned the entertainment factor, which is one thing, but I think also it's because it, as an outsider, it seems like the most prominent black voices in America, they really do push some aspects of the victimhood ma- narrative to different levels, right? It, it's, that's the very predominant message, right? It's not, it's not a balanced, it's not a balanced message in terms of the voices. So I think with her it's almost like an, it's like an equal and opposite reaction. You see what I mean? It's like a yo-yo Yeah, effect. so it's kind of like, okay, it's harder for, I mean, because I, 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 ha- I have this myself. Like, if you put me in a room with, if I'm talking to you, it's easier for me to be more moderated, right? If I'm talking to like four super left-leaning, everything is racist type people, I almost become more, because I, 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 I now need to sort of counteract their narrative almost. So, sure. so I come almost less neutral, right? I almost come from a more, <laughs> you, you, does, does that, yeah, sure, does that sure. kind of make sense? It's, no, it's sense. a bit like when I talk to people who really, really, really hate Trump, I come across like some huge Trump supporter, right? I'm not, mm-hmm. a, I'm not a super huge Trump supporter, but if I'm talking to four people and they're all like just saying like this crazy, super hyperbolic stuff or saying he said this and he said, it's not stuff he actually said, then I yep. end up looking like, I, I, cause I'm defending him, defending him, defending him. Whereas if someone comes more moderated, then I'm also more moderated. And it's easy for me to talk about like, you know, cause I get people like, Oh, how come you never, how come you never criticize Trump? And I'm like, cause you five are always criticizing him. So I don't need to <laughs> you, you, like that, that part of the conversation is already, is already being heard. So sure, I have my criticisms, but if 
five people are criticizing him and I'm the one who's not like, I'm going to sort of sound like, oh, well, what about this? Oh, he did this or he did that. Or someone says, oh, he said this. And I'm like, no, he didn't say that. He said this. So it sort of seems like, um, yeah. So I, I think that is kind of what happens. I think for so many years, for so many decades, all my life, if I think of prominent black American voices, you know, it is the the Al Sharptons and the, um, I'm trying to even remember names, um, but they all come from a very left-wing perspective generally, you know? So. Yeah. And, and I, again, this isn't an endorsement, an endorsement of anybody's politics, right? But I feel like if we talk to each other, it would be more helpful and in everybody's best, in everyone's best yeah. interest than to talk at True. each other. And, yeah. that, and I'll just, I'll make it very practical. I did a video uh, specifically speaking to white evangelical Christians, like people that, that that are predominantly in my audience. And I made a video and I said, unhelpful responses to racism yeah, and Black Lives Matter. Yep. And I went over all of them. And at the end, I just keep, I keep saying, hey, anybody that wants to hop on a call with me, if you can watch the whole video, you want to hop on a call with me, you have further questions. I would love to, and I did not do it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not no expert <laughs> on this stuff, right? Like I'm just observationally, like these are kind of some of the conclusions that I came to. And and out of that, uh, it seems like more people rather go back and forth in comments and text than to, you know, and that's, the, and I've had like four people take me up yeah. on that offer. Hop on a Zoom call with me. Let's talk. Explain your further concerns to me. And I've had four and three of them were like, it was almost like white grief. And like, <laughs> like, how do I talk to my white parents oh, about gosh. this stuff? And I'm just like, you don't have to talk, yeah. like, you don't have to do all this. This is just, this is just... I, all I want to do is just for you to see someone yeah, else's yeah. perspective from your out group. And for that's anyone it. listening, that, that but, stuff does get very, very cringy, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And I'm just like, hey, like it's like it's okay. You don't have to feel yeah. and that's see, that's some of the other, right? Is that the other perspective is they're just like white guilt and white mm. shame and I hate my whiteness. Yeah. But I feel like if we were, if me, you, uh, Candace Owens, uh, Sean King, who I've recently been communicating mm. with over Instagram, right? Who's a Christian guy as well. We were just to have to sit down and just have a conversation, right? Over mm. dinner. I bet you would be way different than the stuff that like <laughs> is going out on social. Yeah. Because everybody's trying to be yeah. polarizing. Everybody's trying to be disruptive to a yeah. certain extent. And I, I will say that like I think in the Can Candace Owens situation, like I, I don't know if in the timing she did it in and what she specifically said was helpful. Like to go back to but uh, uh, yeah, he was murdered and I'm sorry he was murdered, but he was yeah. a criminal. I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of bringing up, you know, if someone is, I don't like the, when, when people get killed in bad circumstances, I, I'm really, really, really not a fan of this. Let's dig up their past and see, cause I'm like, that's not, that's not relevant. Right. It's not, it's not. Yeah. There was, I mean, there was stuff, there's just all kinds of yeah, stuff. And even in some of the stuff you said, like when you came out and you were like, dude, Ahmaud Aubrey, like that was, like that was just flat out murder. Sorry, which one? I, oh, I that. said that for a Wait, George, George, George Floyd, you mean? George, excuse me, George Floyd. You said this, you said something similar on Twitter mm -hmm. as well. I, I thought that I say, and then you were like, this is why I don't, this is why I don't say anything. Yeah. Right. But even in reading some of the comments, it was like, there were still people that are like, no, he deserved mm -hmm. it. Yeah, you no, know what I mean? Or like, it, why was he yeah, uncut? And and I'm just like, man, like we could disagree with the solutions are and we could say and we could even say, hey, you know, some of the some of the responses can can reinstate this type of mentality. Mm -hmm. 
right? And this mentality isn't helpful, right? I don't think anybody should walk around with a cloud over their head and have this victim mentality. That is not how we roll. And we're going to go to a, a Black Lives Matter protest after this. Like, we're going to go and protest because to, to your point, my nieces and nephews, my son, like they know, they know what's real, but you're going to learn video. You're going to learn to work yeah. hard. You're going to be a person of yeah. your word. And we're going to go protest, yeah. right? And my wife asked me this the other day and she said, you know, we think about um, like, what, where would we have been in in the the context of dr king everybody wants to think that they would have been marching with dr mm -hmm. king you know and like what do you lose by saying black lives matter like what is oh. the what is the l oh, there for oh I, okay no well you know I mean? so, not you personally yeah, no. not you personally so, or what is you what what is the oh. l by standing with somebody and 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 protesting mm -hmm. like like what is the loss of that like to because to, because it seems like it's more of a loss to someone's pride yeah. and taking an l to someone's pride and less about well, I just think it's unhelpful for black people to see themselves as victims. Yeah, da, 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 no, da, da, I don't think that's right? their pro So I really don't, I don't support Black Lives Matter. I'm not talking about the organization. Okay. I'm not talking okay, about the organization. Well, I'm talking about the just the sentiment. Yeah, the conflation of those things the sentiment. is a big problem because okay. you know, I have no, the statement, Explain. Black Lives Matter, everybody, you know, like, <laughs> anyone remotely decent um, agrees with mm -hmm. the statement. But I think the problem is the total conflation between the organization and the statement. And of course, the statement is popularized by the organization. So if I go on their website, sure. um, as I've done recently, and I remember I did when it first started springing up about five years ago, and I actually read what their goals are and what they stand for in their aims, I'm like, a lot of this is very antithetical to, you know, they, mm -hmm. they're, they, they, they're not fans of the nuclear family, right? There's a lot of stuff in there, which I'm just like, no, this is, this is nonsense. So they got I'm, some sketchy views on, on yes, a so of I'm very hesitant to you know, if, as long as those things are conflated, I don't want to be a part, like I can, I can support my principles, et cetera. And I can, I can stand for justice, but I, I will never hashtag black, black lives matter. Right. I, I, I Let me ask you this. It. Go ahead. How, how many people who respond or dismiss black lives matter? How many people you think have actually went on their website? No, not, a, not a lot, but I, I, no, 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 not, not a lot, but I, th I think they should. I don't think people should parrot lines because it's it's popular you know if there was some sure. sort of far right movement like legitimately far right but they had a you know a, a catchy slogan that i agree with you know i'm not gonna even if i agree with a statement i would be extremely hesitant to use the hashtag or to put it on a sign and to wave it around or whatever not because i disagree with the statement but because you know, okay let me let me give let me give, give a great example um how about this? You know that because you've probably, I'm sure you've seen the "it's okay to be white" thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that statement, mm -hmm. of course, right? But we know that there are actual, like, actual white nationalists <laughs> and stuff who you that are yeah, using who, that who use that statement. Sure, it's sure, okay sure. to be white. So sure. I don't disagree with that, right? But yeah. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm I'm not gonna use it online or on social media or put it on a t-shirt or go out and wave sure. a sign saying it's okay to be white. I, I agree with the state. Of course it's okay to be white, but I know, I, I know what's behind it. So I think that's a, maybe that's a kind of equivalent. I, 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 I see what you're saying. I guess I, I just tend to be more optimistic mm -hmm. in that um, as a Christian, if someone is saying, Hey, these are the values we believe black lives matter. And I say, okay, I'm with you there. I don't know if me showing up to a to a rally 
endorses everything that the rest of that organization stands for as much as it's endorsing the sentiment. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm I'm open to being wrong on that. And then Sue, you, you, earlier you asked like, what are the, what, what is the, the, the changes that we want to see, right? Like what are some of the practices? I was on a NAACP town hall call with our local sheriffs and police chiefs yesterday, Mm -hmm. me and my wife were on it. And since this has happened, the state of California has banned all chokeholds. Okay. Like right yeah. away. Right. So, so, so what good has happened? There's a lot of good things happening despite what the media mm-hmm. is telling us. The media is showing the purge and like the worst <laughs> of the worst of these protests yeah. and riots yeah. and how many of the protesters are rioting and how many of the rioters were even with the protesters and how many of these are Antifa and other groups yeah. coming in and how many of these are just frustrated kids that are sitting at home that have nothing to do and, and don't, you know, don't have a job that just angry, like, right. So that's what the media is telling us. However, I'm seeing actual change from police chiefs that are saying, we just outlawed this. We can't do this eight things that the NAACP proposed. We can't do any of these things. Now we're already on the books. This is the state of California. This just got, we just got the memo and we sent it to everybody. Right. So that's, I mean, that's pretty fast change. And, and it, to me, it feels hopeless. But when I hop on a call like that and I see that, um, and so I think there are good things happening. I think the majority of the protests that I've seen of my actual friends being there, I think are good. And I think even the ones that get rowdy, I got buddies uh, like Trey Little, who's like a TikTok celebrity okay. star in Detroit, like yelling at Little these kids that are coming. He has a picture with Royce to five nine. I don't know if it's the okay. same guy, but he just posted a picture with him. Because you, you said Detroit, and I know on one of Royce's old albums, he had a rapper called Trey Little on a few tracks. I don't think so, but maybe, maybe it's just the same name. Him and they just posted a photo okay. together. That's why because you said Detroit, and I was and, like, uh, okay. Yeah, he's so, so he's from Detroit. He's like a TikTok dude, Christian guy, a lot, a lot similar to kind of like you know, not in the Christian hip hop yeah. world, but a Christian, so on and so forth. So he's there in Detroit. And I keep posting these photos of him standing with signs saying like, Black Lives Matter, but don't burn our city. We have to live here. <laughs> and he's posting yeah. videos of him, like him and other people yelling at these white kids who are coming from the suburbs and standing and protecting mm-hmm. police officers he grew up with that are like, like, I know these guys, these guys are from my yeah, neighborhood, yeah. right? So I, I see a lot of really positive things happening. And um, but there are some things that still need to be addressed, like like Brianna Taylor, like the Brianna. I don't know if you're keeping up with that, um, you know. But like the I know, I know the Taylor, story. I know what happened to her. I don't. Know. Yeah, so they go into the wrong house. The cut. The suspect they were looking for was already in custody, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and they kill someone, yeah. like murder mm-hmm. someone, and there's no no consequences. There's they they, they didn't even get they didn't even get sent home, mm-hmm. like. How do you drop, like how, how is there such a massive screw up on that level and no one's in trouble and no one's yeah, held accountable, crazy. right? So when you, so again, when we see that and we're not looking at it as an isolated situation and you say, well, it's just poor bureaucratic practices mm-hmm. in Louisville, Kentucky. And da, 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 yeah. when we look at that and we say, well, what about all these other situations? Yeah. And what about all these other things? And what about these weird laws that police have um, I'm sure you've, I'm sure if you heard of this one, it's the two plaws deniability, um, just, just like goofy stuff, like goofy <laughs> stuff in the way that they're able to, to finesse themselves. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look it up so I don't, I don't get there's it screwed. That, there's um, some qualified, there's a qualified something as well. Qu- yes. Qualified, qualified immunity. immunity. That's the one. Qualified immunity is just goofy. <laughs> like it's just goofy, right? Yeah. Or, or let me give you another one. Let me give you another one. And I just discovered okay. this this week, and I looked it up multiple times, hoping I was wrong. 
in the majority of states in the United States, it takes substantially longer to become a barber than it does to become a police officer. Big problem, right? And we and 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 and, and so the, like, what if? What if, and I'm not for defunding the police. I don't even know what that practically that means. Like, are we just going to pull all money? That doesn't sound, yeah, that doesn't sound like a pragmatic solution. But what if, what if a police officer, much like a doctor, much like a lawyer, much like a pilot, had to go and get six to eight years of training instead of six to eight weeks of training? <laughs> Imagine, and they came out and made 125 bands yeah. a year. And they were very well competent. Imagine the type of people that yeah, would attract. Totally Imagine the type of culture that would be totally. Yeah, and you know, I, th- I think everyone. That's nonpartisan. I, I don't. I think you'd struggle to yeah. find people on either side of the aisle that would would disagree with that. I think what happens is, I, I I didn't touch on this earlier. There's another reason why I don't like the Black Lives Matter thing is because it. I find it unnecessarily exclusive, right? Because. What happens is once things become racially polarized, yeah, sure, you are going to get um, white people, typically liberals, who are going to you know jump on the Black Lives Matter movement. But there mm-hmm. are a lot more people who could be on board if it wasn't treated as if police brutality is only an issue against black people. I understand the disproportionality, but ultimately, you know, it might be something like something like 35% of the police people kill are, are black something like, around that right yeah, so yeah, yeah. a lot of people I actually are, got i actually have it written down yeah. that's funny cuz i did i did the math man yeah 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 so <laughs> you know i know people don't like to hear the, the all lives matter thing all right i know people don't like to hear it on an emotional level but to i know to people who say that it's like well why are you dismissing 65 to 70 percent of the thing where so i think that it would be rather than people clashing over this discrepancy between all lives matter and black lives matter and kind of getting lost in the weeds on that i almost feel like you know you're 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 both actually saying the same thing you you certainly want the same thing right you you don't want these these as you put them goofy police laws you don't want police brutalizing people or shooting people unfairly whether they're they're black they're they're brown they're asian they're they're white, whatever, like no, nobody wants that. So I think that the messaging, I think that the message could be better. I know some people are like, look, we want to focus on, we want to focus on black people first because we feel it's a bigger problem. But I just feel on a, both from a, from a tactical level and from a sort of, as an, as an, as an, again, as, as an outsider, I feel like, look, rather than splitting this unnecessarily, why not just why, 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 why not just like get everyone on board here? Because even if you're talking to the, you know, even the, the staunchest, most pro-police conservative doesn't want, you know, doesn't want black men or anybody being gunned down unfairly, doesn't want them being put in chokeholds, et cetera. And they're sort of being painted as if they do. And I'm like, as someone who speaks, as someone who speaks to these people, I'm like, no, no, yeah. they, they, they don't. But they're kind of like, well, it's hard to, it, it seems too agenda driven for them to get on board. You see what I mean? Yeah. I think, you know, I think the tough part is um, the, the the tough part is the ratios, mm-hmm. right? When you start looking at the ratios and you start looking at, uh, you know, the three to mm-hmm. one, the five to one, I think that becomes a tough mm-hmm. part to say that. And I, I did a, you know, one of my videos is like why I don't think it's a helpful response. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, you know, went over all the metaphors. I agree with you. First time I heard it, part of me was like, well, what do you mean black lives matter? Like, what, 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 what are you yeah. saying? You know? And, uh, and I, here's the thing. I think in this social media climate, like I think it is supposed to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. I think it is a, a, a further polarizing response on purpose yeah. because it was, Hey, justice for all civil rights. Mm-hmm. We want fair treatment. And, and that got MLK assassinated. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that got MLK assassinated. Then people rioted for, I don't know exactly how many years. And then that led to actual legislation getting mm-hmm. passed, not condoning rioting, but that is what happened. That, that, that is literally the timeline, mm-hmm. right? So these things got passed after he gets assassinated. Then they riot. Then this thing gets passed. So I understand why, why someone would say, no, we need to focus on black life right mm-hmm. now, because according to these numbers, according to these statistics, according, and then amplified with, according to these things we've personally experienced, it seems like there is a dismissal mm-hmm. for black, See, black yeah, life. I don't, that's, that's the, that's the schism there, because I don't think that that is true. Like, it, it may be, maybe perhaps people perceive that that may be what some people feel, but I don't believe that this is true. And Again, I'm saying this as someone who, well, certainly knows way more white conservative Americans <laughs> than uh, than the than the average average person does, and interacts with people all the time. And it's um, you know, there, there's a there's a big misunderstanding. There's this idea that you know these people just don't don't care, right? And I'm like, no, that's it. it might it might be a it's, it's probably a, a messaging problem on both sides, right? But the truth is that. They do, right? With the exception, as you said, with the exception of the kind of people, you know, there there were a handful. When I posted about the George Floyd thing, right, there were a handful of comments which people were. I was kind of like, "Come on, dude," you know what I mean? But that was one in thirty. You know what I mean? Like, vast, yeah, I would agree yeah, with you. Most most yeah, people vast care. majority of people. I I even had people saying like, "You know what?" Like there were people who thought that the guys who killed um, Ahmed Arbery. Mm-hmm. That thought yeah, that, that they they didn't think that they were in the wrong, but they thought that the George Floyd one absolutely was in the wrong, right? So those are people mm-hmm. who are already like very quite biased towards taking the police or taking the police side or, or sort of taking the other side. And this one, it's like even, even they're kind of like, no, like this is this is out of order. Like I think this particular one was actually quite a wake up call because a lot because the truth is a lot of the here's another issue with with what's happened with black lives matter is the conflation of all the different of all the different incidents because the incidents are different right the george floyd situation is not the same as the michael brown situation right it's not the same as situations where cops have you know perhaps a cop has been attacked and someone has ended up being shot right there's there are, and and a lot of times they all get conflated and then you kind of look into the story and it's like well that may have been a justified shooting. So you don't want to respond to a potentially justified shooting the same way you respond to uh, a choking or another killing, which is very clearly, very clearly not within the bounds of what we'd call any kind of decent law enforcement. And so I think that's again where the, it's again where the, where the messaging just gets, just gets lost. I, like I'm, I'm just, I'm personally, like I'm very skeptical about you know the 
Yeah, like the, the the Black Lives Matter movement, because it's so the the political angle to it, the fact that it always pops up in election years, and then they go quiet. And then it's, there, there are just so many factors behind it, right? And I'm not talking about the people who are not, you know, like the general public who just kind of want to get out and they believe in the cause and they want to protest, etc. Like, I, I'm not I'm not even talking about that. It's just the there, there's, there's another angle to it, and there's something sort of behind it, which I find very insidious. And so because of that, even myself, even as a black man, it is, it is hard for me to just be like, yeah, black lives matter, black lives matter, because I'm, 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 I have a lot of skepticism around the whole thing and what the- Around the organization. Yeah, the organization and, and what the agenda is. Sure. You know what I mean? Like what's sure. the sure. what is the agenda? Why 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 don't they want to talk about there are certain things they could also talk about. And it's like, well, why don't they talk about that? The the movement is called Black Lives Matter. It's not called Black Lives Matter when they're killed by a white police officer. So again, I am like, well, you know, I know in your video, you know, you suggested certain things are not helpful, but at the same time, if I'm like, okay, Black Lives Matter, so why are we looking at the zero point one situation like why why can't we talk about the other 90 99% right why can't why can't we talk about all the other things that are are killing black people cuz you know there, there there's a there's a lot of stuff there so the, yeah. the I think we can yeah, yeah. I think we can and I think I think we yeah. do maybe they okay. don't but I think a lot a lot yeah. of people do and I think again this just goes back to like what are helpful and unhelpful responses mm-hmm. like I think um when you're talking about police officers who've taken a uh, oath to serve and protect behaving recklessly mm-hmm. towards a disproportionate rates towards uh, blacks. I think that's a different conversation than, well, what about, well, what about black on black mm-hmm. crime? Well, what about white on mm-hmm. white crime? What about, right. Right. What about, what about poverty? Crime yeah. is directly correlated to poverty. Mm-hmm. Like that is the number one. And if you look at, and if, and if you look at um, poor whites, mm-hmm. And poor blacks, they commit crimes yeah. at the same rates. They use drugs at the same rates. They're, they commit violent crimes mm-hmm. at the same rates. So I think the response is just like, okay, well, we can talk about that yeah. stuff. But so I, I'll give you an okay. example. Um, I had some buddies. This is going to sound crazy. Okay. <laughs> but when I was getting saved, I had some buddies that were like grew up Christian and they, uh, they ended up losing their virginity at like church summer okay. camp. Right. <laughs> and it was just like, it was yeah, preposterous yeah. to me as like someone that wasn't even yeah, like, yeah. I was a new Christian. I was like, you did what with yeah, who, yeah. where? Right. And it was just like, that's stupid. And that's yeah. awful. And like, why did you do that? Like, and I, and I believe that that's not helpful. I believe, you know, I believe marriage is intended for a man and a woman. And, 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 and I mean, sex is intended for a man and a woman in a marriage bed. Like I believe that. Right. So that doesn't, that's, that sucks. Right. I think it's a little different when, a kid gets molested by a pastor mm-hmm. <laughs> at a church yeah, camp. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, like, like both are bad. Yeah. <laughs> like both are bad. And you know what? There's probably, I don't know what the numbers are, but, but maybe, maybe there's more kids consensually having sex at church mm-hmm. camp. Right. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. And I wish they didn't happen. And I think that they're creating consequences for themselves that they're going to have to mm-hmm. deal with. And I wish that there was better oversight. And I wish that, I, I wish there was a, sure, co- a bunch sure. of things that were reformed sure. there. Right. But, uh, but, and I would, and I would piss me off if my son went to church camp or at 25, me and him have a conversation. And he tells me, you know, I lost my virginity when I was 16 at church yeah. camp. I would be pissed yeah. off. If I found out he was molested, yeah. 
by a pastor, yeah. I but would the I I want no. I would be very very yeah. like that's a di- it's just different. I don't think I don't think the analogy works for me. Okay, why? Because the outcome of like murder is murder, right? You're you're yeah. talking and sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Well, a molestation, a, a criminal molestation. Pedophilic. Did you know? Did you know that in the state of California, yeah. two minors can't have sex legally? Like they can, you yeah. can get in trouble. Either uh, one uh, could get in trouble. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know the specific laws in 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 um in California, but you know, two fifteen year olds consensually, kind of consensually having sex with each other. I you know, I think we we do know that's a big difference between a a predatory adult um, molesting a child. That, that- so. My point with the police thing. No, I don't think that's fair. No, because if if a black guy kills a black guy, a black guy is dead. If a cop kills a black guy, a black guy is dead. The result is totally 100% the same, right? You're talking about murder. You're talking about somebody dying, somebody losing their life. So with me, it's like, okay, let me frame it slightly differently, right? If you say we 100% solved this police problem and we got the police killings down to zero, right? Unlawful Mm -hmm. police killings, we got them down to zero, we've still got 99.9% of the problem. So mm-hmm. with me, it's like, well, why is, I'm not saying this 0.1% is not a problem, but the super extreme laser focus, rioting, rioting, fighting, protests, et cetera, going on. Whereas if this whole thing is resolved, the the main big major problem still remains. So if I were to found an organization called Black Lives Matter, or I were to promote a movement called Black Lives Matter, I would be focusing on the 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 big stuff, right? Like it doesn't mean you don't deal with the small stuff, but I'd be focusing on the, okay, the 90% of the issue rather than the 0.1. Like we can fix that. If we can get the 90 down and get the 10% down, then we can go for the 0.1%. But the thing that Weird to me. But I don't know if they're necessarily correlated. Though. That's what I'm saying. Like when you look at implicit bias, like we can't say, oh, well, because blacks commit 39% of petty mm-hmm. crimes or street crimes, that therefore they're, they're going to, uh, they're, it's, it's somehow justified or it's somehow in, it, it makes sense on why they come into police with contact more and therefore they're more, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think we should, I think we definitely need to do eradicate violence and street mm-hmm. crime and all that kind of stuff. Right. I think um, I think it's a false equivalency in that these situations are different because there's people holding power over other people and seldom getting prosecuted. Mm-hmm. When majority of the time, getting away with yeah, it, sure. yeah, that, right? Until until recently, yeah. like until, and it finally seems like with these three cases back to back, and there's no footage of the Breonna Taylor case, but they came out and said, "Yeah, uh, our yeah. bad, my yeah. bad," <laughs> right? Uh, there's no footage of it. And so you got these three cases and it seems like when it comes to this issue, a lot of people are finally waking up and saying, wow, especially yesterday it came out that the guy who shot Ahmaud Aubrey stood over him mm-hmm. by witness, mm-hmm. witness who was charged complicit mm-hmm. in it, and stood over him and yelled yeah, effing yeah, N word. You know what I mean? And so I think we're now finally starting to wake up. I, I, so I guess what I'm saying is like, what about black on black crime? Why I don't think that's a helpful response is because I know of a lot of organizations and I know a lot of people and I know a lot of Christian rappers and I know a lot of, a lot of people in the community doing ministry, uh, doing gang prevention. There's guys like Big U out of LA who are doing amazing work with bringing truce and uh, gangs to defuse and like 
all these things are like happening. Like, there's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing work. Maybe it's why, not as polarized. Why is it so quiet? How come I'm not? Why? Why am I not? Well, I, I know some stuff happens, of course, but why am I hearing like a billion times more from, you know, about the police stuff than I am about that? You know, that that's. Is it possible that because when an officer who takes an oath to serve and protect the community kills an unarmed black man unjustly, is it possible that maybe we view that as more egregious, that we view that as a bigger violation than if two I, kids I, get into it? I think a we do, and I think that in itself is a big problem. Yes, I, I, I think so, so that's I think why. That, I think that's I think, why we don't hear as much. I think we've gotten very used to black people killing each other. I think. And that and yeah. that that that's a whole like fabric of society. <laughs> I, I think that we've totally society has gotten so used to you know black yes. people just killing each other that it's it's not even news, and that makes me sad. I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm kind, I'm I am a numbers person. You know, I am I am very much a numbers person more than I am a, a, an emotional person. And I'm like, you know, over seven thousand black people were murdered in the U.S. last year. Seven thousand, mm-hmm. right? nine were killed, nine unarmed black people were killed by the police. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not even a, that's not even in the same, same world of magnitude, right? I can understand how in some ways it may feel more egregious for a police officer to abuse their power and to kill someone of, of whatever color. But I'm kind of like, man, look at that other, that other number. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, why are, that's, and, and yeah, it, sure. Maybe some, some people are talking about it. But it's it's like it doesn't just like people are saying, right, we want to shout about Black Lives Matter because we want to put this in people's faces. I'm like, yo, like you're you're saying Black Lives Matter. I agree with the statement. But, yo, 7000 bodies here. Like, can we we make some noise? And it's and it's and and that is dude, that is that is a a horrible um, reality unfortunately and i've been to the south side of chicago i've been to baltimore i've been to philadelphia i've been to these areas that are um crime infested i uh maybe and i'm not speaking on behalf of all black people but maybe uh maybe there's there's an understanding of people who grew, who are in poverty are way more likely to be victims of violent crimes mm-hmm. way more likely to commit crimes in general right so maybe it's because of the uh, the solution is pretty obvious, like in poverty, mm. <laughs> like in poverty, you will end crime. How do we end poverty? Whoa, whew, that's a man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do we end poverty? That's a, that's a, that's a tough yeah. undertaking. It's, it's all the above, mm. right? It's all the above. It's reforms. It's uh, more education, more after school programs, more grants for mm. colleges, uh, more trade schools, more uh more entrepreneurs stepping up complicated there's a this it's complicated it's It's so heavy maybe some form of ubi whoa that's very polarizing andrew yang he's a socialist right like (laughs) like there's just so many different ways to to combat Mm. that and and it dude that's a big undertaking so to say how do we do that seven thousand lives i do feel that for a lot of politically correct reasons people do really tiptoe around that um and or do you think let me let me ask you let me push back or do you think it's because we know with the root of the issue, no, is, I don't which think, is I don't, a lot of people. I don't people, think it is. You don't think, you don't think people know that it's directly correlated to poverty and not well, black there, people just being there, savages there, and there violent? There are a lot of factors, right? And that's why you'd even get a lot of answers. If you ask people that question, like, what is the problem there? You're, you're going to get a hundred different, you're going to get a hundred different answers. And I, I don't feel like, I think it's extremely uncomfortable for people to, to talk about it. And I think it's uncomfortable regardless of who they are, right? As a, as a black person, mm-hmm. 
as a black male, right, as someone who's in that demographic, even if you're talking about the UK, the, the, the statistics are not as wild as they are in the US, but even in the UK, I don't like to, I don't like to look at the statistics. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not, yeah. they're not pleasant. They're no, not, it's, yeah, it's like, I'm nice. like, this is yeah. not a good, this is not a good look, especially as someone inside that demographic, but also for someone who's outside that demographic, right? Like the white guy who brings it up, what are they going to call him? Right. They're going to say, Hey, like you're being racist or, you know, they'll, they'll want to call that person names, et cetera. And, you know, to use your words, I don't think that's helpful because if you want to actually, if you, if you legitimately wanted to get to the root of this problem, whether it's shootings in Chicago or Baltimore, or it's stabbings in London or Birmingham, right. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to, people have to be willing to be uncomfortable, right. You, you, you can't coddle everybody. You can't just let people scream the yes, word. Agreed. You can't let people just scream the word racist at everyone. And it ends the conversation. It's like, look, if you do want to stop these young men in particular dying, then we need to have this conversation. You can't, you, it can't just be PC all the time. It has to be, you have to look at the different factors, poverty. You do have to look at culture. You do have to, there's a lot of stuff you have to look at. You have to look at fatherlessness. I think that's a big one, right? There's so much stuff you need to look at, but it's like all of these things make people really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I guess I say it's un, unhelpful because I do see it as a deflection. I do see it as we're talking about this. We're, yeah, we need to talk about this and we can talk mm -hmm. about it, right? I have no problems talking about it, but um, this is what we're talking about again, because it seems more egregious because it seems more mm -hmm. awful. And so why I would say unhelpful is I just feel like it's a deflection. Um, and it's, and it's an issue that I personally mm -hmm. know a lot of people doing good work yeah. on yeah. it actively guys doing prison ministry guys doing after school programs i know multiple people running after school mm -hmm. programs i know multiple black uh black poli uh not police officers uh probation officers yeah. people that are the probation officers before yeah. they have to have a probation officer right like i just know a lot of people doing work to prevent crime um i don't know how much work there is to prevent poverty yeah. right i know a lot of people doing a lot to prevent black fatherlessness that's again good. my best friend no, is that, a black that's, father that's awesome that's awesome he's on a freaking dove yeah. ad in every single cvs right and like he's he's his entire channel and platform exists to highlight and celebrate I, black I, I, I love that man like i i, I love that yeah. um that's what i think really man if if i were if i were seeing like a lot more of that then maybe you know. i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of youtube yeah. black fathers out there no, like like once you get into that, that ecosystem yeah. Yeah. you discover like oh gosh there's like a couple dozen of mm -hmm. you guys out here there's a couple dozen families there's then there's blended families and these kind of and all kinds yeah, of yeah. right there's a lot of different people out there and so i think i think i guess what i'm saying is i know people that are doing great work the the issue to me and maybe this is me more of i guess my trying to simplify it, right? The issue to me is poverty. Like the issue to me is whether it's fatherlessness in the white community or fatherlessness in the black community. When we look at poverty, that's where we see the numbers of fatherless go through. It's not like white fathers are holding it down and black fathers are these deplorable, horrible people. That's not it at all. Black fatherlessness, white fatherlessness, same ratio. White murder, black murder, same ratio. When you adjust for poverty, right? So the question to me is then, well, how do we fix poverty? Then that becomes a, my job, my job, but what I'm doing, I'm going to empower people to become financial literate, financially literate. I'm going to teach people how not to take out loans to start their businesses, how to set up a pre-order to launch your t-shirt, how to have, you want to be a musician? Mm -hmm. Sweet. You need to sell something else. 
Zuby's a musician, but you know what he sells? He has a book and there's a higher margin on that book than on that freaking Spotify stream, right? So that's my contribution to how do I eliminate poverty? And then I'm going to do it in a way where I can hire my black niece who grew up in the foster care system. I could hire my black friend who just got out of prison for doing 10 years because of a, of a, of an offense where everybody snitched on him and he didn't, you know, he wasn't the mastermind, but that's what happened, right? He took the fall for something and did 10 years in the feds. Like, I'm trying, I'm going to create economic opportunity for, for the people in my mm-hmm. life and then empower other people to do the same so that we get, like, I got a my buddy of mine, just, he's buying up the block in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Like, but he owns his home. He bought the lot next to him. He's about to buy the lot next mm-hmm. to him. Right. And all that's going to create economic opportunity, not just for black people, Everybody, for yeah, people, man. right. For everybody. And so I think, I think to me, when I'm talking about solutions, that is my contribution. I like I want all of us to be statistical outliers. I don't want, if the divorce rate is 50%, Man, I want you to be that 0.10% that has the dopest marriage and you and your wife are best friends and you're going on hikes and watching them doing all the, you know, the fun stuff you get to like, I want to have the best relationship with my son. Like I want people to be statistical anomalies. That is personal responsibility. Absolutely, bro. But I can't get to that conversation with a lot of people until I acknowledge the things they have to overcome in their trauma. You know what I mean? If it just goes back to, Bro, you bro, you gotta step up, bro. Gotta step yeah. up, be responsible, stop yeah, being a victim. The, the, it's a great way to get people to shut know, down. The, the, the truth <laughs> is we need both sides, man. This is this is yeah. what people miss in general. You know, you 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 yeah. do need both sides. If people are just getting one of them and none of the other whatsoever, then that might be a problem, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's my, bro, just so you know, yeah. that's why I'm here and I and I love pressing into conversations yeah, like man. this with you, even though we might disagree on particulars. And that's why I'm DMing with Sean King and I'm trying to better understand his paradigm. Sure. And I'm trying, you know what I mean? Like, like I want to understand di- the different polar, at least on the surface, mm-hmm. we would look and we say, well, Candace Owens is all the way over here and Sean King's all the way over here. And he's facing stuff that isn't always accurate about police. Da, 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 and Candace Owens just seems crazy, right? Can we, can we talk? Can we have conversations? You know what I mean? Like, cause, cause I think, and I don't mean to speak on behalf of anybody, but I think if me, if, if you were to share, man, we have to be, you know, we have to be responsible. We have to make better choices. We have, I don't think anybody, I don't think Sean King or anybody on the far le- left, right. would be like, nah, man, <laughs> make crappy choices. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I just don't think that that they see that as pragmatic. I think pragmatic solution is yeah man we got to move forward and we got to be better (laughs) like everybody has to be better right yeah no i'm you know i I hold people to high standards and um i've I've realized that uh that's the that's the source of a lot of a lot of conflicts and arguments that i have with people is that i i I hold people to you know high standard regardless of you know like i can understand history i can understand things i know some things are easier or harder for other people i get that but ultimately as human beings, it's, uh, in terms of equality, I'm, I'm equality down to the idea of like, no, like, you know, we need to hold people to the same standards. Cause ultimately, as I say, the, the law will, you know, the law will, the, the law is not going to say, uh, you know, your dad wasn't there and you know, you went through this and you went through that. Like they don't care. I think you're, I think you're totally right. I tend to have a bit of a darker view of people <laughs> because of sin. Right. So I hold leaders to high standards, mm-hmm. I don't hold my son to a high standard. I don't, I don't, I don't tell him to man he's, up when he has an emotional he's outburst. Five, <laughs> he's five and a half. Yeah. Right? Here, I, I'll go deeper. Okay. I'll go deeper. I don't hold my nephew to a very high okay. standard. 
right? My nephew says he wants to go to the NBA. He's 6'2", he's 160, right? He, he, genetically, he has it. Like, he has it. He's good. He's good. He hasn't been here all week. He was supposed to come over last night. We were supposed to train. I'm supposed to train him, put some muscle on him, right? We go, we go do drills. He didn't come over last night. I'm mad at him. I'm not holding him to some, where were you at, bro? What the heck? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm going to tell him. What, what, tell what, him, about, what about when he's 30? Well, okay, so then, so then, so, so leaders, yeah. I hold leaders to high standard. If you're married, you're a leader to me. If you're a father, you're a leader to me. If you're a business owner, you're a leader to me. If you're a police officer, you're a leader to me. Those people, I need you to man up. I need you to be responsible. I need, you know what I mean? Like those people. And I've had a lot of fallout with, with friends of mine who um, up and left their wife just because, yeah. right? And that relationship deteriorated. I do, I do not tolerate you deciding to divorce your wife because you felt yeah. like it, because you had a suspicion. I've had that happen twice. Mm. Two of my best friends from, from high mm. school did that. And I was just like, yeah, bro. Like, I can't stand beside you in the middle mm. of this. You were being irresponsible. It's not godly. You have no grounds for the divorce. And I literally had to step aside and say, bro, I got to give you over to that because that's, yeah, you know what I mean? I hold someone like yeah. that, a husband and a father to a standard. I'm not going to hold an 18-year-old kid to the same mm. standard. You know what I mean? To who, who, do, who doesn't even know how to process their own emotions. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, or, you know, they say what? The brain's not yeah. developed till 25. Sorry. When, when, when I know? said everyone, I did mean adults. I'm not a, I've got nieces and nephews too. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, a, not, not treated, <laughs> treated my two-year-old two, two two niece the same way as, uh, yeah, man. Yo, this is, the, this is the longest podcast by a mile that, Really, oh, dude. I normally do an hour. How long we've we been going? Over two hours. Two and a half hours. I normally, Ooh. I normally cut it. I normally do an hour, like seven. No, bro. no. I could talk. No, it's like <laughs> I didn't even want to. If I need to put it out as two episodes, I will. But um, no. It was just such an interesting and I feel necessary conversation because it's so. You know, I think both of us are decent at speaking to both people on both sides of the argument. And a big problem, as I said, is that people get entrenched. So you get a lot of people, you know, they can call themselves liberals or, you know, progressives or I think they're all different things, but, you know, they, they're only, they refuse to speak to anybody who would even dream of wearing a MAGA hat, right? They wouldn't, they won't speak to anybody who voted Trump. They won't speak to anybody who calls themselves conservatives. So they're just in that echo chamber. And then you get the same thing to some degree on the other side as well. And I think we both do a good job of not, not doing that. And, you know, and I've received a lot of criticism. I've received criticism for not like outright rejecting, uh, cause there was a certain time on social media where I, I think I can't remember what the post I had. I, I had a post go viral, which brought tons of like MAGA people over to my Twitter. Right. And there, there was like this watershed moment where, and I had people sort of like, uh, criticizing like, Hey, like, how come you're not, why aren't you rejecting these people? I was like, why would I reject these people? I, I know people who I know people who voted Trump. I, I, I grew up, I grew up in Saudi Arabia with, you know, people from Texas and whatever. Like, I know a lot of them voted for, I, I don't, these aren't evil yeah. people. These aren't one of my best, yeah. one of my best friends. Yeah, voted yeah. For Trump. Like, tons of people. Like, you know what I mean? And so I'm like, no, like, I'm yeah. not gonna fall into this thing. Just like, I'm not going to, I wouldn't do that if someone voted for Hillary or Bernie. I really, really disagree with Bernie's politics, but I don't yeah. assume someone who votes for him or who supports him is, you know, Joe, Joe Rogan's a, Ber a Bernie. Like, I'm, no, like we just have yeah. different perspectives. It's not, um, it's, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know. I think, I think what I love about what you do is that you're able to, um, to, 
to have just a different paradigm mm-hmm. than like the typical person, you know what I mean? And I think that's helpful. Yeah. I think, I guess my heart is that um, a lot like, I don't know how much you've kept up with Gary Vee, but a lot like Gary Vee giving people actionable steps on what they can do to become successful. Mm-hmm. What I love about him and I love about him on The Breakfast Club is that he never glosses over people's trauma, mm-hmm. whether as a, as a group or as individuals. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't ever want to feel like I'm glossing over somebody's pain or glossing over the yeah. thing. Whether they're a white male <laughs> who grew up in a trailer yeah. park, you know what I'm saying? And there's some challenges and some mindsets they have to overcome, even though they may they may have a degree of quote unquote white privilege, but they don't feel very privileged, mm-hmm. right? I feel that. Like I get that. Like I dude, I'm I'm the epitome yeah, of, of that. Like I did not grow up, in my opinion, privileged with a lot of advantages, but I don't deny the fact that I have advantages on a superficial level of how I'm viewed in society and that those have helped me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I would never, but, but, but if somebody's not there yet, I'm not going to be like, Oh, you're a racist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to say that. No, cause here's where I think me and you would agree. I think the majority of people's intent is good. Is yeah, good. Definitely. We just are lost in words and everybody wants to speak before they want to listen. And if we were just to give each other the benefit of doubt and hear each other out and like, no, like right, right now, this is my, my, my feeling. It's black people's time to speak. Okay. Let them speak, let them talk, let them get it out. This is a time for us to learn and for me to translate mm-hmm. <laughs> to my white friends. Cause, cause they're not, I, sometimes like my black friends get dismissed as the angry mm-hmm. black guy. You know what I'm saying? Or they, or literally my black friends right now are overwhelmed because okay. all their white friends are texting them all these <laughs> questions. <laughs> And apologizing, and they're just like, bro, like I got like eighty white people, and I just realized I'm black friend. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm standing in the middle, and I'm like, yo, send them my way. Like I'll talk to them. You guys, are, this is too much. Like this is too much for them. Send them, and I'm literally telling yeah. like my, my my fellow Christian yeah, rapper yeah. friends, everybody, like, yo, just send them my way. I got a video, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to talk to anybody who has follow-up questions face-to-face. We're not going to go back and forth over yeah. text. Then we're not going to go further over comment yeah. section. I just, I'm deleting that and do just hit me up. And, and the, again, I'm hopeful because when I speak to people, the intent is a hundred percent, not a hundred percent, majority of the time, super positive, super like, how do we fix yeah. it? You know what I mean? And it's like, Hey, let's just listen, mm-hmm. like go and listen to these people and hear them. And I'm not saying I, I, I'm an endorser of Black Lives Matter yeah, organization sure, sure. or everything Sean King says or anything. Like, I, I'm, I don't know. They're funding the police. Like, what, what the <laughs> heck? I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know. But let's hear sure, them. Let's sure. hear them. Let's love them well. And, and, uh, and then let's create economic opportunity and do our part and be responsible and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So I think it's, it's an and both. There's just, I feel like conservatives have such amazing values to add to the world, let alone just black people, Mm -hmm. but to the world that when they gloss over the trauma, it invalidates their perspective. That's an interesting thing. And I just, I just don't want that Mm -hmm. to happen. So like my, my buddy, like you coming out and saying, no, this was murder. Like, I think that's like an acknowledgement. My buddy Voss, Lavoisier with grow the heck up. You guys should connect by the way. Yeah. We follow each other. He's a, okay. Dope. So you know who he is. Um, Amazing. Right. And he will not deny that this is, that there's structural racism, Mm -hmm. even though he's a MAGA guy. Do you know what I'm saying? Or as far as I know, I think I'm pretty sure he's not. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think that then empowers him and, and gives people ground to hear him and be like, well, let me hear you out. Oh, you're doing real estate. Oh, that. I, oh, that's an interesting career. Oh, you learned coding. Whoa. You know what I mean? Someone like yourself. Oh, wow. You went to uh, Oxford. Yeah. 
yeah, you went to Oxford, you're educated, you're an entrepreneur, you, you're, you're into fitness, like all these things that really in, on an individual level, the solution, are they not? Education, fitness, right? For your mind, your body, you know? And so I just don't want, I just don't want, like, I feel like a Candace Owens, not to keep going back to her, has so much value to offer if she didn't just gloss over the, the pain and acknowledge the pain and then said, hey, I acknowledge it. This, the way Gary Vee does, this is suck. I respect, I feel it. I understand, I, I don't understand all of it, but I feel it. Hey, go download the eBay app and let's go garage selling and flipping so you can make an extra 2000 yeah, bucks this month. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear that totally, man. I hear that totally. And, you know, I think the, the big problem is that people don't, you know, what we're doing right now, this is what people have to do. Right. Because yeah. it, it takes time and the communication channels, despite the fact we are more connected than, than ever, the communication right. channels are t- Twitter is amazing, but Twitter is a terrible platform for having a, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the worst platform for having a discussion about right. anything remotely serious or consensus for, for so many reasons. Firstly, there's like an audience, right? <laughs> there's, yep. there's an audience yep. and, and people want to score points and people want to save face. So even if someone says something that's totally wacky, like provably wrong, and you show them that it's wrong, they still won't even want to, they won't want to take the L, right? They, they can't just say, oh, I was wrong because people are looking, et cetera. People want to get retweets. People want to get likes. There's like a scoring, mm-hmm. there's a scoring function. It's not even balanced, right? I could, I have a ton of followers, so I could say some like wacky, crazy, infactual thing <laughs> and it'll get tons <laughs> of likes and retweets just because I'm saying it, right? It could be completely wrong. And so the whole thing is just messed up and, and it takes, it takes time. You know, you need to look someone in the face. You need to be able to hear their voice. You need to be able to talk, et cetera. I may say something on Twitter and someone interprets it this one way. And I'm like, no, I didn't, you know, some, some, sometimes I make, sometimes I make a joke, like, which I think is a very obvious joke mm-hmm. and someone gets like all offended or whatever. I was like, dude, it was, <laughs> I was, I was literally like, like laughing to myself as I typed this, like this was, this was a joke, you know? Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's the problem because it takes, it takes time, it takes effort and it takes willingness for people to actually want to do it. That's why I think people really need to get out of the idea of, you know, everyone is, everyone who doesn't think like me or vote like me is evil and racist and a fascist. It's, I think that is super, so incredibly dangerous in terms of polarizing people. Cause it's like, no, actually the, the people who think that, like the person who thinks that everyone who votes for Trump is racist, that is the person who needs to actually talk to a MAGA guy. You, yeah, you know, like, like, like you need to have, you yeah. need to speak to these people because you can't just for years and years on end block mil- dozens of millions of people in your own country, like completely disassociate with them and then vice versa. Because I'm like, where does that lead to? That's certainly not understanding. Certainly not yeah. love, certainly not empathy, right? You're going to have to, either you're going to end up fighting violently or you're going to have to just like segregate, you know, maybe you might just need to s- split the USA into two countries and you have, and it's like, well, that's where you're going to end up eventually if right. you don't just agree to disagree and act like adults right. and say, okay, you know what? I disagree with you, but. I don't think you're a fascist. You know, that would be a good start. <laughs> that, that would yeah. be a good start. You're, yeah, yeah. You're, okay, you're, maybe you're not a Nazi. Like, that, that would be a good... Yeah. Uh, that, Agreed. That, <laughs> yeah. Bit of charity, you know what I mean? Like, bit of charity, yeah. you know. And, okay, I, yeah. I, I, won't call you a, I won't call you a Stalinist, you know? Like, 
okay, cool. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you could probably call me a Stalinist because I came over from Soviet Russia. Like, you know, but, yeah, let's go with yeah. that, man. Ruslan, bro, where can people find you online, man? Uh, it's just Ruslan KD everywhere. Ruslan KD on Instagram, Twitter. I'm not as uh, I'm not as uh, spicy as you on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not as interesting as you on Twitter, probably. Uh, RuslanKD.com, RuslanKD YouTube, um, all that stuff. Awesome, bro. So good to talk to you, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate you, bro. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.